For me, it began in 1992 with an ending. I was five years old and happened upon a comic shop advertising the death of Superman in its window display. From that moment forward, the Man of Steel has been my favorite character. And now on this podcast, I'm exploring my fandom and examining the creative visions that have shaped the last son of Krypton across media for over 80 years. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. This is part two of our discussion about the 1950s television series, Adventures of Superman, and I'm joined once again by Rich Roney. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, again, as I said last time, there's no one else I would, uh, I would even dream of having on these Adventures of Superman episodes. So we have a lot to get into. I have a real quick plug uh, before we do that, which is I have a new podcast series that's out. And I know you might be thinking, isn't Digging for Kryptonite a new podcast series? And it is, relatively. Uh, but the new show is My Comic Shop Book Club. And, you know, longtime uh, listeners of mine, and, and you, of course, uh, know that I've done book club episodes here and there over the years. I've done a few on my Patreon page. I've done a few as special episodes of My Comic Shop History. But I've sort of always kind of had this itch to turn My Comic Shop Book Club into its own full-fledged series. And now I have. Uh, so it premiered one week ago on January 13th. Uh, episodes will be released uh, every other Wednesday. So between My Comic Shop Book Club and Digging for Kryptonite, I'll have a new episode out every week. Uh, plus My Comic Shop History is out on a monthly basis. So there's a lot of content uh, for everyone to hopefully enjoy. And the, the episode of, of My Comic Shop Book Club that premiered uh, one week ago, in case anyone hasn't uh, checked it out yet, is a discussion of All-Star Batman and Robin, The Boy Wonder, uh, by Frank Miller and Jim Lee. And my guest for that one uh, was Sean Hendricks of Fat Moose Comics. We had a lot of fun. There was some whiskey involved. There, <laughs> there was a lot of laughter. And ultimately, I think, a, uh, a thoughtful and fair uh, breakdown of a somewhat controversial title from DC's defunct All-Star line. Uh, so for anyone who wants to check out that or subsequent episodes, uh, the video version is on my YouTube channel, Anthony Desiato. All my podcasts are now available in video form on my YouTube channel. Uh, if you want to listen to the audio version, uh, it's available via all of the major podcast directories, Apple, Spotify, Google, basically wherever you would get your podcasts. Uh, so again, uh, audio version is on the podcast platforms and the video version is on my YouTube channel. We have a ton of bonus content on the Patreon page. So again, there's a lot of content. I hope that everyone checks it out and that everyone enjoys. And Rich, we will certainly be roping you in uh, for future episodes of my comic shop book club. You and I have already talked about that a little bit, but we'll we'll have you on for that for sure. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> so we had a pretty epic conversation about Adventures of Superman uh, two weeks ago. Then we did a bonus episode on my Patreon page where we broke down uh, the standout episode your favorite, one of my favorites, Panic in the Sky. Uh, so for anyone who wants to check that out, I hope they will. Uh, we had a great discussion and, and really got you know, pretty, uh, pretty specific about it. You laid out the episode in, in magnificent detail. For anyone who hasn't, uh, who's not a patron uh, or if you just haven't listened or watched yet, uh, yeah, we had, I think you and I had a little bit of a miscommunication uh, in terms of <laughs> what I was asking you for. Uh, but it was this really funny moment where I was like, okay, let's talk about the episode. We can go scene by scene. And you were like, well, if it's okay, I'll give the, a brief high-level summary. And I'm like, okay, great. And then you went in in the most specific detail. I mean, you you basically acted out the episode. It was it was kind of astounding. I mean, honestly, I, I it I'm glad we captured that. I think it's it's one of those like uh, 
it was a very rare moment, and I'm I'm glad that we captured it on audio and video. Uh, I, I, a week later, I'm still embarrassed. Wow. Uh, um, I'm definitely embarrassed. I know Steve contacted me and said, "Hey, Rich, it sounds like you just you know went on for over seven minutes." And it, in my mind, I thought it was eh, probably two or three minutes. Um, I didn't know. I mean, that, that clearly must have been uh, my OCD. Um, and the sad thing was I didn't have any notes. I didn't have, I, I just did that off memory. So that that's even more terrifying. But, um, you know, I, uh, sorry, I stepped on your toes and apologize. No, I, I know, you know, we talked about this off mic too, but honestly, I'm, more than anything, I am kind of glad that it happened and that we have it captured because I think it really, like all, you know, all, uh, you know, chop busting aside, I really think it speaks to, you know, your fandom, your passion uh, for this series and for that episode in particular. And it's like, yeah, I could probably do seven minutes on seven minutes straight on my favorite Smallville episode for sure. Uh, so I think that's really what comes across. And I, and I think that's, you know, ultimately a, a wonderful thing. But yeah, it was a seven minute monologue and you know the episode itself of adventures of superman that we were talking about is only you know 24 25 minutes so you yeah you know that was that was really something i gotta say so for anyone uh, who hasn't checked it out you know not not to not to harp on the patreon but uh it, it's it's really a fun episode and uh, i think you would enjoy it uh, especially if you've been enjoying these conversations about adventures of superman so thank you for participating in that <laughs> so so I'll be very, if, in case I ask you for any summaries, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll tread carefully. In this understood, episode. understood. As I've said, you're in the driver's seat and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to be super attentive today. So last time, two weeks ago in part one, uh, again, really, I, I, I enjoyed it uh, immensely. And, and we talked about that, but uh, we primarily focused on seasons one and two of, of Adventures of Superman. In this episode, I want to pick up on a few threads from last time. I want to talk about the color seasons, seasons three through six. I have a lot of thoughts on those. Uh, I want to talk about the end of the show, the legacy of the show, uh, attempts to continue the show. I know you want to circle back to the radio series and the Kirk Allen serials, you know, the precursors to Adventures of Superman. So there's a lot for us to cover today. I think we'll have, we'll have more than enough to sustain us for, you know, however long this goes. But before all of that, you know, kind of tying into the idea of the legacy of Adventures of Superman, I have somewhat of a personal, but like a big picture question that I wanted to ask you. And I wanted to lay it out first, because I really think it gets at the heart of why we're even having this conversation in the first place. You know, you and I have talked a lot over the years, and I've explored this a lot on my podcast, about the impact that our introductions to characters can have on us, right? Especially when those introductions come at a really early age. Right, they can be incredibly formative in shaping our taste as readers, uh, our collecting behavior, and and also just what we look for in terms of stories featuring those characters. Right, like so, those first introductions, the way we meet certain characters, can really have a big effect. And you know, as you explained last time, you know, this was Adventures of Superman, the George Reeves incarnation, was your your introduction to Superman. It turned you on to the comics. You got that first issue, you know, that issue of World's Finest, that was your first comic. And I guess I'm curious, and if you don't necessarily have a specific answer for this, that's fine. But I was curious if you can pinpoint any ways in which, uh, again, this version of Superman kind of impacted your view of the character and, and maybe things that you, that you like or don't like in, in subsequent versions based on 
this introduction to the character that you had. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this definitely, definitely influenced my perception and kind of the ideal of what you consider a hero. Um, I definitely, I think I, I've touched on this before, but to reiterate, I'm so impressed with George Reeves' portrayal, especially of Clark, more so Clark than Superman. Um, so, it, 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 and you know more than I do about this, but I will say um, I was super, super, no pun intended, I was tremendously impressed with his portrayal, especially of Clark, because he was not a timid milk toast or, you know, a, a reticent um, 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 kind of goofy, timid mouse. Uh, he was very assertive, very pur purposeful, very decisive. Um, so it was difficult for me when I saw other versions because this was kind of the ideal. This was the template in my mind. Um, yeah, I, you know, um, I, I, def I, I candidly defer to you. You have a greater breadth of it. I mean, no, um, but, but actually that's that. You, you hit on something that maybe we can kind of flesh out just for a second here, which is, you know, because as you were, as you were talking, we've talked about this so much about how both of us really enjoyed uh, this version of Clark Kent, right? And so, you know, I, I am curious, like when the Christopher Reeve version came out, obviously that's a very different take on Clark Kent. So, I, I mean, I know, and, you know, we've spoken about, the, the, you know, the Donner movies over the years, and, and I know generally you're a fan, but I mean, was that something that was, was kind of tough to, to get behind yeah. like that version of Clark where he's, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful performance overall, I think, but it is very, very removed again from what we saw George Reeves do. And, you know, Clark is, he's bumbling and, and, and cartoonish. I, I mean, is that something that was tough to kind of reconcile? Yeah. Now, but I will say the comic books that I read as a child, right? Again, I watched this in the 1960s. It was all reruns on a local station outside Chicago. And I was at the mercy of whatever the program manager decided or chose to to um, put on for that given summer afternoon. Um, but the comics that I read at that same point in time, from like, say, 1963 to, you know, uh, the late 60s, early 70s, when I read DC, um, the portrayal of Clark was more akin to the... Christopher Reeve portrayal where he, he, he's definitely an antithesis. Um, he's also, if I may, um, with the adventures of Superman, Clark is the real deal with the Donner versions. It's almost Clark is the mask and re uh, the, the Donner versions and Christopher Reeves, his portrayal of Superman is powerful. I mean, I, I love his portrayal of Superman, the character, but it was hard. It was hard for me to um, sync up or reconcile or come to terms with his portrayal of Clark. It was a little too cartoonish, a little too over the top. Uh, you know, I, I'm with you. Uh, you know, the thing I've always loved about, and this is, I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's okay. You know, one of the things I've always loved about the Christopher Reeve performance is that scene from the first movie where, you know, Lois is getting ready and Clark is waiting in her apartment. And 
you know, he toys with telling her his secret, right? And he takes off the glasses and he stands up straight and his voice drops. And it's like the physical transformation that you see him go through is really like, it's just a masterclass in acting. And it's like, wow, you could kind of see how maybe people wouldn't put it together that they're the same guy. And I like it in that sense. But yeah, I've never been a fan of that bumbling Clark. And this might be the Smallville fan in me. In, In fact, it's almost certainly the Smallville fan in me. But, you know, Clark... Again, Clark is who he is. So the idea that he would put on this show, uh, I don't know. I feel like it it diminishes who he is to an extent. I mean, that's sort of the way I view the character. Uh, so I get what you're saying. And, and I could see, especially growing up watching George Reeves, I could see how there might be a little bit of a disconnect when, you know, when the, the Donner movie came out. The one other thing that I was curious about is... Uh, and again, not not to take us you know too far astray here, but you know we've talked about how again how decisive and clear of purpose both Clark and Superman are in this series. Even the origin episode, I mean, there's really not much waffling as far as like, oh, am I going to become Superman or not? It's like, boom, this guy's out there, he's Superman. <laughs> there's really no inner conflict for him, which of course is a big di- big difference, uh, you know, between what we're, we're seeing now uh, on the big screen, right, with with the Zack Snyder, Henry Cavill take on the character. And, you know, so I'm curious there, too, where, you know, you see a Superman who's really more, more conflicted about what his role in the world is going to be. Again, very different from the George Reeves Superman. Is that something that kind of takes you a minute to get used to, or do you kind of chalk it up to, well, it's, you know, a sign of the times, and we've had decades in between? Like, where do you kind of fall on that? Boy, uh, well, let me say this before I answer that. One thing that I really enjoyed, and I know I'm mixing mediums, but I loved it in the, just after Crisis on Infinite Earths, when John Byrne kind of, um, you know, relaunched and and did a fresh take on Superman in the mid-1980s. Because John Byrne's version of Superman was Superman, but his version of Clark was more akin to the George Reeves version. His Clark was more assertive. He wasn't, and and even, I'll tell you, even as a child, um, you know, say being 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, when I would read the Silver Age books, it always annoyed me how uh, hurtful and disdainful, like Lois and Lana, and dismissive they were of Clark. Um, and, and that harkens back, I think, to the Siegel-Schuster version in the, in the very early years. Clark was a, a timid mouse, and he was looked down upon by Lois and Lana. Um, so I did like the, the George Reeves and the John Byrne version. I, I will say, i got to be as honest as possible, um, the Brandon Routh version, the, the, um, the recent Zack Snyder version... In a, in a rough fashion, I go, I watch the movie, but they're not my Superman. I mean, uh, I, I can appreciate the the intellectual firepower and the thoughtfulness Zack Snyder's imposing on Superman and, and the messiah versions and, you know, is he a deity? Is he worshipped? But he kind of seems so self-reflective and introspective and hesitant. It's really at odds with what, and, and Anthony, again, I've said this, your energy and your interest has really increased my own interest and especially my appreciation of what this TV series did. Look, I was only going to watch three or four episodes and I figured I could, I could milk that and talk to you. I really dug in and watched a lot of these episodes and I gained a great, much greater appreciation of this character, 
Yeah. No, I mean, I, I totally get what you're saying. And yeah, you know, I just bring this up because I think it's really interesting, again, how we view the character and how those introductions shape that view. You know, as I've discussed many times, right, Death of Superman was my starting point, but really the 10 years I spent watching the television series Smallville, I think it's fair to say that was the my most formative uh, experience as a Superman fan and in shaping how I look at the character. And, you know, in that show... You know, Clark is always, you know, depicted he's a he's a good person with a strong moral code instilled in him by his parents, and he's helping people on a weekly basis. Yet, he is very much at odds with his alien origins and the destiny that, that awaits him. And, you know, the idea of becoming a public-facing superhero is something that it takes him the entirety of the series <laughs> to get to, 200 episodes. So... You know, for me, like watching the Zack Snyder movies, and I've, you know, I've already done hours of on this podcast about the Snyder movies, but, you know, for me, that felt very much in line with the Clark that I saw on Smallville. I mean, it was kind of taken to the next level, I think, to a certain extent, but, you know, this whole idea of, you know, that introspection and wrestling with, well, what is my role in the world going to be? What should it be? Again, that felt very much in line. So again, like I had this formative experience and then I saw a version that to me kind of felt in line with that. So for me, I think it was much easier for me to kind of make that leap. But again, I could see growing up with the George Reeves Superman, how, uh, how again, it might take a minute to kind of get used to that and how you might feel like, well, that's not really my Superman. It's, I have to say, you know, and, and there will be things that we talk about on you know subsequent episodes of this podcast or maybe things that we don't cover for a reason you know not every version of superman is my favorite but you know i'm happy to say like i can say that i'm a fan of you know the zack snyder superman and i'm a fan of the george reeves superman i think you know it's such a such a rich character and you can take kind of different approaches and i do genuinely think that each approach was probably appropriate for the time you know, and that's the other factor here. We're talking about a character with an 80-year history. So, yeah. you know, I think maybe each generation kind of gets the Superman, you know, it needs to an extent. No, and 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 two things I'll say. I don't want you to think that, or I don't want the listeners to think that, hey, it's George Reeves, and on a scale of 1 to 10, he's 10, and everyone else is a 3 or a 4. That's not the case. I mean, again, what Christopher Reeves did, and like you said, that one scene his body language, he just, you know, kind of tilts his shoulders a little bit. He stands a little straighter. And in, in microseconds, you see a powerful transformation. But to me, in the Donner movies, it's about Superman. And Clark is just kind of a caricature, right? But he really plays into the extremes of what Siegel and Schuster, you know, set up as the, the well, I'll be so timid, no one will ever connect the dots. Right. Uh, well, thank you for indulging me on, on that bit there. I thought it was interesting to explore, again, kind of tying into this idea of the legacy of the character and how, you know, it shaped your view of Superman moving forward. So, you know, last time we talked about the first two seasons of Adventures of Superman, the black and white years. Uh, and as we laid out, you know, those were really, uh, especially in the first season, really noirish crime dramas. Uh, in the second season, I think it still retained that spirit, but was definitely, you know, uh, a little bit lighter. Uh, we saw a bit more Superman. Superman used his powers more. Uh, we had a change in actress with Lois Lane. Um, there were more heartfelt and human interest stories. So there was definitely a shift in the second season. But I think, uh, you know, we can kind of, we can draw maybe a dotted line between seasons one and two, but a hard, bold line between <laughs> the first two seasons and seasons three through six. But before we get to the color years, uh, I thought it might be fun because we covered a lot, but 
uh, I wanted to do like just a quick kind of like lightning round about a few episodes that we didn't necessarily talk about, not to, you know, not to take apart the entire episode, but just to kind of call out, you know, things that Good warning there. No, <laughs> as for myself, as for myself as well. And uh, no, you're being too diplomatic. But uh, but just to kind of call out some things that either you and I talked about off mic or maybe things that we didn't get to talk about that I, I think we would find funny now and hopefully our audience would as well. Uh, so I'll kind of I'll, I'll go through them. And if there's obviously anything about the episode or another episode that I don't mention, like, please, like, let's take this opportunity because I think it'll be fun. Uh, there's the episode. So these first few are from season one, uh, The Mind Machine, which is is interesting because with the exception of uh, the unknown people, a.k.a. Superman and the Mole Men, right? With the exception of that and uh, the origin episode of Superman, you know, again, as we as we talked about, season one in particular, very, very grounded. So the this mind control machine was one of the more, you know, kind of like fantastical uh, plot points in the episodes. And I thought that was interesting. This episode is infamous for Superman ducking when a gun is thrown at him during the uh, the final battle. Do you remember this? Uh, only, only in reading it. I don't, I don't remember it per se, but I did read on one of the blogs or, uh, or IMDB that, uh, uh it was a stunt man yes. who, who actually ducked, uh, you know, when the, when the gangster threw the revolver at him. Yeah. And that's why I say Superman, not George Reeves. Cause it, and it is, it's funny. Cause the first time I watched it, uh, I guess I wasn't paying close enough attention and, and I was like, wow, I can't believe he would duck. Uh, and then I, I too did some reading about it and I went back and I watched the scene and, and, and with a closer eye, yes, it's very blatantly a stunt man. And, uh, yeah, you know, we saw, you know, episode to episode, right. You know, the, the bad guys would always shoot at Superman and he would just stand there, of course, cause the bullets don't affect him. And I noticed in the earlier seasons, you don't even see anything coming at him in the later seasons. I guess the effects improved a little bit where you saw the effect of a bullet bouncing off of him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but in any event, yeah, so this episode, <laughs> one of the bad guys throws the gun. I don't know why they thought that would work when bullets didn't, but nevertheless, but they throw it and yeah, the stuntman ducks. And, uh, yeah, so that's kind of a, an infamous moment, uh, as far as the, the fight sequences go. True. True. Uh, oh, this one, I know, I know you'll, we'll have fun with this one. The secret of Superman, where the bad guys use hypnosis on the people yeah. close to Superman. Oh God, yeah. I want to have there's. I want you to lay out the Perry thing, but let me just say quickly. I what I love, the episode opens, if memory serves, with Jimmy's mother calling Clark in the middle of the night because Jimmy hasn't come home yet, and unbeknownst to them and to us, he's been hypnotized. Right? We'll find that out shortly. But again, going back to the impatient Clark, like Clark wakes up, he wants nothing to do with this. He's like, listen, he'll probably be home soon. <laughs> Not uh -huh. like ultimately, though, you know, he, he does get involved, but uh, but that initial dismissiveness uh, <laughs> just makes me laugh. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing with George Reeves, <laughs> and that's not the only episode. Um, much as I love his chemistry with children and his generosity, there's other episodes, but boy, boy he's impatient. I mean, uh, that uh, Jimmy's mother, and then also that one secretary early on when she like didn't give the note to him. Uh, at the right time. I mean, his impatience is right up there. Uh, the other thing that I, I'm going to leap forward, um, this whole thing with hypnosis, is this the one where, oh yeah, it is, where um, they do some contrivance where like Clark is fired from the Daily Planet 
And and in like two days, he's a skid row bum. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, I mean, I do remember only only within the past couple of weeks watching it and then discussing it with you. But he goes out to a friend of his who has like a coffee truck outside. And, uh, you know, long story short, he goes, hey, uh, you know, hey, uh, Charlie, can you cover me for a couple of days? You know, and, whoa, can't slow down. You're already into me for 50 cents. You know? Yeah, I guess. uh I guess Clark wasn't too good with his money. It didn't. It, it lasted him barely twenty four hours. Yeah, that was funny. What I thought you were going to say, and this was oh. the thing that I that I had written down, is uh, Perry. Is Perry, Perry right? So so there's yeah. this like press club right at the Daily Planet with the dining hall, and it's like okay, that makes sense. But apparently, you know, Perry also seems to have what's essentially a hotel suite within the Daily Planet, right? Yeah, which is yeah, interesting. Yeah. But then the thing that always stood out, and and this is a very small thing, but you and I have never been able to figure this out. He orders up coffee at like <laughs> like I don't know one or it, two in the morning. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. And there doesn't my seem to be any was, breaking news or anything. Yeah, my my impression was, or I, I synthesized it that he must have been working really late, chose not to go, uh, or maybe 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 he had a permanent apartment at the. Uh, the journalist club or whatever it was. Um, but what baffled me is that I had the impression it's like one thirty in the morning and he's ordering a sandwich and coffee. And then he berates the the fake waiter like, hey, that coffee better not be cold. And I'm thinking, who's going to chug a couple of cups of coffee at one thirty in the morning? It, it just seems so, you know, weird. Like, you know, why wouldn't you want to get to sleep? And he was like, you know, he, he took his... Uh, his suit jacket off and he had like a uh, a robe on over his shirt and slacks and he just get that coffee better not be cold it just it just flabbergasted me yeah i mean it's like ultimately right that happened because they needed the bad guy to uh you know impersonate the waiter like they needed perry to order something right so that the plot could move forward but yeah it was just always kind of odd to me you know we talked about this in the in the patreon episode but i'll just mention quickly you know the perry white in this series is exceptionally gruff uh and and perry white generally i think is depicted that way and so that that didn't feel so out of line but you know normally there's a little bit more of a of a warm center uh a warmth to the character that uh you don't really see much of in this series especially in the no, first very, couple seasons but but generally too yeah i agree he is just gruff and uh almost cranky and curmudgeonly and, and just you know, uh, he bites everybody's head off. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's, um, in the, I know last time we talked about the crime wave episode, the episode that largely consisted of recycled footage and newsreel footage oh, yeah. and voiceover. But in that episode, do you remember they specified that Perry White used to be mayor of Metropolis? Oh, I didn't know that. I, I didn't pick up on that. Yeah. I, and I don't know. Maybe, I mean, I don't know of any other instance in the comics or anything else where that was ever utilized but i thought that was interesting uh and again it's one line and that's as far as i know is like never followed up on but they do in the voiceover they mention like perry white editor of the daily planet former mayor of metropolis interesting yeah i didn't pick up on that yeah i did not i i do know that earlier we discussed this that that one um no holds barred the wrestling episode i mean like perry takes it upon himself to shut down that corrupt corrupt wrestling syndicate and he's very He's leading the charge on that thing. It seems like it was of interest to him, and he was going to make it of interest to the the uh, citizenry. 
um, but there was also another quirky thing in there where, where, um, uh, there's some college wrestler and he's kind of, um, flirting with Lois. And at one point, uh, Harry goes, you know, Hey, lighten up Clark. You're not doing this because of, uh, that young Kendall boy or something like that. And that baffle, where did that come from? I know. Well, you know, it's funny. I guess maybe that is one instance of him, you know, showing some, some interest and care for, for, you know, the people around him that, that stood out to me too. That was especially interesting because, uh, you know, despite the fact that they did 104 episodes, right. Uh, that largely featured you know, Lois and Clark and Superman, you know, the notion of a romance between the two of them was, was touched. It was exceedingly rare in the show oh. for that to even be acknowledged. So, you know, that was such a small moment, but it a hundred percent stood out to me too, where it's like, Oh, yeah, it, like he's actually saying to Clark, like, do you have feelings for Lois? It was like, Whoa. Yeah. And it, 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 it was a very abrupt, you know, very abrupt came out of nowhere. And to your point, um, yeah, I, and I'm going on a tiny tangent. I, I liked the chemistry better with Lois from season one, Phyllis Coates. I thought there was more chemistry. Um, to me, she was more the quintessential Lois of the 1950s. Um, but yeah, they're, they're really only in the comics was that love, you know, that triangle between Lois and Superman and Clark. Right here, it was really you know, very, very undertouched, very underdeveloped. Yeah, for sure. And I, I have a little bit more on that, which when we get to the color episodes and one in particular, uh, the wedding of Superman. Uh, oh, there was uh, an episode that I don't know that we ever actually ended up talking about, but I emailed you and I was like, hey, if you can pop this disc in and watch it, uh, it's very entertaining. The Human Bomb from season one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did watch that. Yeah. yeah. What did you think of that one? Uh, well, I, I think that's the one where I figured Jimmy has got to be... <laughs> A writer's, he has got to be a writer's dream. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there, I mean, it, when you look back on some of these episodes, and, and to your listeners, I, I say this with uh, affection and respect, but boy, they did not put a lot of production value or co- uh, uh, money into the, the, the effects. But the issue here is there's some, I guess, weird gambler guy who, who gets like a vest and a, a fishing vest and loads it up with sticks of dynamite. And uh, he's going to, he's going to constrain Superman for half an hour while some of his men do some robbery. And he takes Lois out on the, on the balcony. Um, but yeah, Jimmy, uh, <laughs> Jimmy's not the guy you want to help defuse a bomb. Let's just say that. And nor do you want Perry to try to work a tape recorder. No. Yeah. Well said. I mean, it was an interesting episode because I feel like, you know, in the color episodes, and we could talk about this, I noticed there were more instances of the bad guys like trying to trick Superman. And so this one, this goes all the way back to season one, but I thought this one was kind of interesting where, uh, again, like they're actually going after Superman and trying to get him to do or not do something. And yeah, right, like you said, the bet is that uh, this this gambler can can keep Superman at bay for 30 minutes. He can control Superman for 30 minutes. And what that means is he's going to tell Superman uh, you have to let this robbery unfold or else I'm going to blow up Lois uh, on the ledge of the Daily Planet. The, I think the three things that stood out to me, and they're, they're, well, two of them are pretty small, but they, they still made me laugh, was uh, you know, Superman's out on the ledge with them, and we don't know this yet, but he has the idea that he's going to go into the office uh, you know, right, right inside the ledge there, and he's going to have a policeman sit in his place 
and through the use of shadows and recordings, he's going to make it seem like he's in the room where he's actually out stopping the robbery that he's not supposed to stop, right? But uh, he has to excuse himself from the ledge, right? So that he can go into the office. And, you know, the, so the, the gambler is like, well, where are you going? And he's like, well, it makes me very nervous to see, and as Superman, he's like, it makes me very nervous to see Miss Lane out here like this. I have to go inside. And I don't know, it just made me laugh that that was like the excuse he gave. And the guy was like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, two other things I'll say uh, spontaneously. I found it interesting that Inspector Henderson was not in that episode, right? They had a different police official that I never saw since, right? Right. Um, uh, so I, I do wonder about that. Um, well, you know why? Because they needed someone who looked more like George Reeves who could sit in the chair. Like that's, that's what's funny about this, right? Because it's like, yeah, normally you would have Inspector Henderson, but all of a sudden it's like this random this random person. And it's like, well, I wonder where Henderson is. And then it's like, oh, well, that's because he needs this guy to sit in the chair and pose as Superman. Okay. See, I thought they would have, you know, even with the shadow, you know, where they got the light to, uh, I, I thought they could have made it work. Uh, um, but, you know, you're right. Whoever this police, police lieutenant was in terms of his uh, physical appearance, he, he looked more like Superman. I absolutely agree. Um but the other thing that cracked me up, if I may, and only when I thought about it, maybe when I was a teenager or other times, candidly, Superman's powers in season one are really super strength, invulnerability to bullets, and flight, and the ability to really throw a punch, right? But I always wondered, why didn't he use his heat vision and just kind of get the guy to back off, you know, like, you know, give him a quick burn on his hand or burn, you know, uh, just to get him distant from Lois. None of that. There were no other powers other than the three I mentioned. Yeah, I know. I'm with you. I noticed that too. And that, that was, again, one of the shifts that I noticed in the second season where all of a sudden now you are seeing, he's using x-ray vision on a more regular basis. Uh, we see super breath a few times. We see heat vision. So like, again, I think they started introducing more of those elements from the comics. But yeah, in the first season, it's like very bare bones with, with the powers. Yeah, yeah he's very physical i mean and, and reeves was an ex-boxer and i think i commented on this i was just so impressed with his athleticism and his you know his ability to really really portray a real strong person who can throw a punch and fight bad guys in a, in a couple of episodes but I, i'm going to ask you i'm going to throw something out and ask you to bring it up later one thing that i found interesting and puzzling was in seasons three to six they seem to introduce new superpowers a couple of times that were never seen subsequently. So I'll let you bring that up when we, we get more into the latter seasons. But uh, yeah, they seem to create, uh, when needed, certain powers to close out an episode. New, new powers that were never seen subsequently. Yeah, I have a, a perfect place where we, can, where we can fold that into our discussion for sure. Uh, but yeah, but the Human Bomb, like overall, was a fun episode. It was kind of thrilling and... Uh, oh, the other real small thing that made me laugh is the gambler, while he's out on the ledge with Lois like handcuffed to him and a bomb strapped to his vest, he offers her a cigarette and she says, no, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if ever there were a point where manners can kind of go out the window, I think it's there, but it's very bad, polite as ever. He says, no, thank you. Uh, but then to your point, Jimmy, uh, so earlier in the episode, the gambler, uh, hands over uh, a stick of dynamite from his vest to prove that he's serious. And Superman actually like flies it up and tests and sees that, oh, this is actually dynamite. 
then genius Jimmy, right? He gets the idea to look up the name of the of the company that's that's on the stick of dynamite, and he doesn't find it in the in the phone book. So he leaps to the yes. conclusion. <laughs> Yeah. That the rest of, the, even though the one stick that Superman tested was real, that the rest of the dynamite is fake. And then like, he goes out on the ledge and tries to fight this guy. Yeah. Yeah. A, a very, he went rogue. It was, uh, it's like, even if the dynamite were fake, still yeah. out on the ledge. Um, Anthony, I think there's <laughs> a, a 95 plus episodes. I don't know if Jimmy was in every single episode. Yeah. But Jimmy is a magnet for trouble. And he's got a couple of identical twins around the world that really were great plot devices. But, um, yeah, I don't know if you'd want Jimmy on your side uh, when you're trying to defuse a bomb. No, definitely not. Oh, but then, you know, it's funny, cause, not funny, but he falls and Superman catches him. And, you know, the effects yeah. are very primitive, but you didn't see a ton of that. They did it in the Mole Men episode as well, where Superman catches one. Yep. You know, and, and again, so it's very rudimentary, but it was interesting. Like we were just saying, you don't see him do a ton of different things with his powers in the early episodes. So that actually stood out to me uh, and as well. to your point, the mind machine, there's one point when Superman is saving a plane from crashing. And that was the only time I saw that special effect filming where he's kind of underneath the plane and, you know, his hair is blowing in the wind and he's he's riding the plane and, to help it land. Uh, whereas the vast majority, we've discussed this, that uh, the way they would splice in stuff from prior episodes to save money from a production standpoint. How many times did, did Clark leave Perry's office and somehow between Perry's front door and the, the storage closet? Have get his hat before he ran in there and, and changed his clothes. Talk about splicing in previous uh, pre previous segments of film. I know. You know, they should have just had like a hat hook right outside of Clark's <laughs> office. And then you would be like, well, okay. He leaves his office, or, he puts his hat on, and there we go. Or film it, you know, either way, you know. I know. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's a big misgiving, and I know we're going to get into it. It is really sad that... Candidly, I think they were so, so economic and so frugal and so cheap that some of these were like really like a theater play where you only got 10 or 11 characters. And we saw it a lot of times the villains and the uh, henchmen and the thugs would be recycled episode to episode to episode, uh, except the one in the stolen costume. Those It was the only time I saw those two characters. Yeah. That, but, you know, the the analogy to a theater play is spot on. I was I thought that a, a number of times as well uh, for all the reasons that you know you you just explained. And it is a, like you could see a lot of these episodes being mounted as a stage production, right? And then like maybe on a screen you would have the footage of him flying or something or shadows. You know, a lot of it really played out that way. It was interesting. And and again, I know I said this last time, but. To me, that's part of the charm of the series. Like, I like the idea that these were different types of stories than you would than you would typically see. Like, I wasn't put off by the lack of the spectacle. Um, I liked that they told different types of stories and and stories that far more often called on you know Clark and Lois and their investigative prowess more than they did Superman's powers. You know, because mm, like yes. we, I mean, in most epi yes. most episodes, especially in the early ones, you know, Superman is just needed for that save at the end. Yes, you know, in in a lot of them. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting. Any other? And I wonder yeah. how much of that was to to a degree the economics and kind of their frugality and not putting money 
in. So we'll just save Superman to the end. And did that also open the door for, did it support George Reeves' view where he kind of made it clear, like, look, I'm not going to play this cowardly, cowardly character. So did it give more screen time to his portrayal of Clark and where Superman just comes in at the end and saves the day? Yeah, no, I know. That's a good question. I mean, I, I wonder that. And uh, maybe we'll circle back to that when we talk about, you know, the, the passing of George Reeves as as depicted in uh, the Hollywood Land movie. Uh, any other season one episodes as part of this lightning round that you wanted to call out? Because I have a few from season two and then we'll move into the color episodes. OK, I guess the only things uh, real fast, I did like the uh, was it the Night Wolf or the Timber Wolf thing? I, I, that was an enjoyable episode to me. And, and then the last thing, the one you alluded to, and I'll have to watch it again. I, didn't, I never knew that Perry was the former mayor of, of uh, Metropolis, but that final episode of season one, um, where, boy, Superman cleans up Metropolis. I mean, he's got a chalkboard, and he, he moves from the bottom <laughs> up, you know, and he kicks off the gangs. Um, but I, I was impressed in the final, final episode, um, where he, he cleans up Metropolis and he fights all the gangs. You wonder who Mr. Big or number one is, but I was impressed with how they wove in and spliced in all, all the prior episodes of, uh, fight scenes or him taking out gangsters. Um, I thought, you know what, that was pretty good. It did give, it did give weight to this or kind of like an accordion opened it up and said, wow, there are a lot of gangsters and he, he does show his prowess in stopping them. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the whole bit about Perry being a mayor again, you know, there's very, very fleeting moment, but, uh, I'm glad you brought that up again. Cause you know, one other thing that really stood out to me uh, across these episodes was, and I think this probably is a sign of the times, like the power of the press, you know, you see the daily planet occupies a very high position in the city of Metropolis. And, you know, whenever Lois and Clark or Jimmy identify themselves as reporters, like, you know, uh, you know, they instantly get in most cases, right. The, the respect and attention of whoever they're talking to. Uh, and yeah, to your point, I was more impressed with that in season two. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, the credibility the planet had, because I think there were a couple of early ons. There was like a, a, a former gangster who was trying to redeem himself and, um, and, you know, pressure was put on him to come back into the gang. And, you know, he'd gotten out of jail. He's on the right road. And then um, there were a few other things where either the, the planet was sponsoring something or the planet was endorsing something or they had some program that was, you know, for the, the, the greater civic good. So, yeah, there was a lot of credibility on the part of the planet. And I think it was kind of a reflective of, the Cold War era, the post-World War II era, where um, there was more of um, a cohesiveness between the press and government. That's a perfect segue. You know, you mentioned the, the, the sponsorships, the contests, all that stuff that the Daily Planet was involved with. Because there's the episode, the, cl- the Clown Who Cried. Is that the, I, I've never seen that. I've never seen that. Oh, it's a good one. Yeah, and Anthony, that, that's something that uh, I, I touched on weeks ago that you don't have the season two dvds i don't have the season two dvds and i was also at the mercy of the um the uh, production manager for wgn circa 1965 right or 64 63 66 um there were certain episodes i've never seen till i watched them on dvd and i think even in season one there were darker episodes 
um, uh, what was it, the Evil Three or something like that, or the one thing where uh, Lois uh, is on a vacation and she's in some motel and um, the motel owner was murdered. Uh, and she and another woman were, I mean, Lois was slugged in the face and knocked out. So it was, it was a much grittier in season one, more of a crime drama. Um, but yeah, uh, there were certain episodes I've never seen till I watched them just two or three months ago. I've never seen Superman on earth. This, the, so, so I was at the mercy of the program manager. Oh, I see. Yeah. The clown who cried was actually, it was a, it was an interesting one that, yeah, the daily planet puts on this benefit to raise it's like an astounding amount by 1950s terms, like $500,000 uh, to send kids to camp, which that's awfully significant, no? I mean, that's a lot even for today yeah. to send kids to camp. Yes. I mean, <laughs> it's yes. Like, yes. like a crazy amount of money for them to raise. If And I don't think I'm mistaken. I, I, I'm pretty sure that was the number. Uh, but there's a clown at the circus, who, Rolo, who they approach to participate, like to do an act during the during the benefit. And uh, there's another clown from his past who knocks him out and takes, him pl- takes his place because he wants to steal whatever cash is on hand at the benefit. So that's sort of um, what sets things in motion. But uh, one thing that was funny about that episode is, you know, we talked about how Lois was like always putting Clark down. Right. Because whenever, you know, something was afoot, he was like, oh, I got to go. Right. And she was like, oh, he's probably hiding in this episode. When they find out that the clown at the benefit is the imposter and he's made off with the money, Clark is like, I'm going to go after him. And Lois is like, no, Clark, don't. It's like, make up your mind. (laughs) (laughs) Make up your mind. All right. Uh, So while we're into season two, just a quick lightning round, uh, because we're we've been going for almost an hour. We haven't gotten to the color episodes yet. That's my fault. But I'm just having I'm having so much fun uh, talking about all this stuff. So. Oh, do you remember the shot in the dark episode where a little kid takes a photo of Clark changing into Superman? Did you I, see that one? It's not, I, I've read about it where, yeah, I mean, his identity as Superman is at risk. Um, but I think also the kid took a picture. It also incriminated a gangster or something like that. And yeah. And that kid, ends up, he was at risk. And that the whole gangster bit, that ends up being the larger thrust of the episode. But, you mm-hmm. know, just going back to like the, angry, impatient Clark, when the woman comes to the office and she goes to Clark's office and she calls him Superman and she repeatedly insists that he's Superman, he gets increasingly agitated. He's like, I'm not really? like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but again, like that, that, that side of him comes out and it's, uh, it's, it's so funny. Uh, you know, we mentioned the, you know, the limited effects and things like that. And in the Superman in exile episode, when he becomes radioactive and he has to exile himself, you know, the, the radioactive effect that they came up with, again, for the time, I thought was was fine. You know? I, I, that's probably one of my top 10 episodes. I mean, it, you know, maybe 10 or 11 in my, but I was impressed where he kind of stops a nuclear reactor from exploding and he becomes contaminated with radiation. Um, and he kind of sequesters himself up on this cabin or maybe it was the same cabin from the stolen costume. I, I don't know. Um, maybe. Actually, that would make sense because I was wondering that. They, I don't think they accounted for whose cabin he was staying at. And not that it's a huge deal, but I'm like, how did he just like automatically had a place to go? But maybe that was maybe that was the place where he brought the criminals in the stolen costume. I like that. I'm going to go with that. Okay. But it was uh, for its time, you know. And again, this was circa, what, 1953, 54, if that. 53 maybe but they showed that you know he would go near some uh, flowers or plants and the radiation would kill them so i was intrigued i thought that it 
you you hit on this, and I, I thank you for it. To me, there's three big buckets. There's clearly season one, which is more noir and a crime drama. There was season two, which was a season in transition. And then to me, three through six are basically somewhat interchangeable or tremendously similar. But in season two, the humanity, uh, there were a number of episodes that really portrayed the human interest. And I thought this was really one that, wow, you know, he did a good job showing how hurt he would be if he were Questered from humanity. Yeah, I'm with you. I, you know, I will say, and I know I said this, I think, really quickly at the end of part one, but, you know, Superman in Exile and the defeat of Superman, there are, where, you know, kryptonite is introduced in the show. There were aspects of it that I liked, and I like that, again, it challenged Superman in different ways than we had seen. I was hoping for a little bit more depth or emotion in terms of what. Superman was feeling and dealing with I felt like we they could have gone a little bit deeper but you know I you know not to you know uh, you know it is what it is and overall they were definitely interesting episodes again I thought they could have they could have kind of taken it you know like in Panic in the Sky what we, we talked about in our in our other episode you know that that beautiful beautiful moment of the, oh, yeah. the anguish and the turmoil as Clark like just keeps trying to figure out who he is and overcome yeah. this amnesia. And it's just a scene, but it's such a powerful scene. I, I guess I was hoping for something a little bit more akin to that in The Defeat of Superman or Superman in Exile. And maybe it's unfair to, you know, to kind of put that on the show. But uh, and, and, and also, if I could say this, I, I like what you just said. And this ties into other stuff, right? I mean, like, they were pumping these things out, doing at least two episodes a week, you know, just banging them out. Because I... I think those guys came back and I do want to touch on this later, but those producers were definitely not actor friendly, right? They captivated these guys for like seven weeks and we're going to bang out 14 episodes, right? Or 13 episodes, um, real tight budget, really efficient, real cheap. Like you could see the rip in Superman's costume. I would love to know what their contract was like, right? How onerous was it or how anti-actor or un-actor friendly? Um, yeah. Um, sorry, I went on a tangent there. No, sorry, no, I let you down. No, 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 not at all. Uh, I just have a few more things on my list from uh, from season two. Oh, do you remember my friend Superman with the diner owner? Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Where the, isn't there like a gun on the wall and he... He uh, traps, you know, uh, he bends it around gangsters and holds them together. I do remember that. Once again, Jimmy, Jimmy is, Jimmy opens his mouth a lot. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But it, so that's an episode where you have this Italian diner owner who boasts of a friendship with Superman. And it's very clear to us and the other characters that he's he's telling tall tales. He's exaggerating. Uh, there's a nice moment at the end where Superman is, is very gracious to him and kind of allows him to bask in this notion that they're friends. Right. Uh, but at the end of the episode, you know, Superman, you know, they're in the diner and Superman beats the bad guys. And then and Superman has the situation well in hand. Right, like clearly these guys are done. The diner owner and his daughter, who works at the diner, they start throwing pies and other food at the bad guys. And then I think like Jimmy joins in as well. And it just struck me as so odd. It's like this is your establishment. Why yeah. are you trashing it? <laughs> well, the other thing, my memory, and this is from memory because I haven't watched it, uh, but the, that diner only has Jimmy and Lois and Clark. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and gangsters. And there's only about seven or eight people in it at the height of its densely populated, uh, you know, so I wonder, I always wondered, how did that guy stay in business? Well, that's a good question. The other thing too is, and not to get on a soapbox or anything, you know, I'm Italian. The character depicted here is Italian. Very stereotypical. I mean, a very thick accent. He he wants to offer them a sandwich. You know, it was it was a lot of that, which was fine, and I, I was not offended by it. But it wasn't a very uh, it wasn't a very nuanced portrait of an Italian American. But you know, that's just scratching the surface. You know, there were numerous episodes. Uh, you know, where the characters travel to to Haiti and to South America. The show's treatment of indigenous peoples again, was uh, probably representative of the times. Um, but again, I definitely through a modern lens uh, leaves a lot to be desired. I mean, in the episode where they go to Haiti, the bad guy turns out to be uh, a, a white man in blackface. Yes, yes, yeah. You know, there's a lot of stuff that, again, you, well, you wouldn't, you certainly wouldn't see that play today. I will say, and I'll give the show this, in, oh boy, I, I think it's, I think it's season one. I forget now. But the riddle of the Chinese jade. Oh, yes. That was season one. One of the like last four or five episodes, I think. Right. With the Chinese, you know, like antiques dealer. And, you know, as you know, right, my wife is Chinese. Our son is half Chinese. When I saw the title and description of this episode, based on what I had seen in previous episodes with other cultures, I was a little worried. I'm not going to lie. I was like, oh, my God. Like, I can only imagine. <laughs> what their depiction of, of Chinese people is going to be. And there wasn't an accent to be found or anything like that. Like I was pleasantly surprised by their treatment of, of, of the characters in that episode. I'll say that. No. And to your point that, that um, just for 10 seconds, that does hearken to the crime uh, drama thing, because some of those were the mystery of this or the, you know, the mystery of the broken statues. So, or the mystery of the deserted town. So I wonder how much of that was a throwback to radio serials uh, from, you know, 10 years earlier. Well, say The Shadow or um, Dick Tracy or things like that. Yeah. Uh, one of the final ones that I just wanted to, to call out is, uh, oh, real quick. You know, we talked about face, the face and the voice last time, one of our all-time favorites where a criminal undergoes oh, plastic surgery and voice lessons to impersonate Superman. It's one of the best. But at the end of the episode... Uh, where they, where they're finally both in the same scene together, they couldn't have found a body double who looked a little bit more like George Reeves. Like it was, I know it was it was. <laughs> now, see, I was impressed. Like we've said, this is like a, um, a village theater where you've only got nine or ten people on the stage. I was impressed with how they cut it, so you never saw the the stunt man or the other actor's face. You saw him running away in costume. And you saw the back of his head and, you know, George Reeves always obscured him as they had their fight at the end. Yeah. The Boulder, I think was the, uh, the, uh, character's name. Yeah. But that's the thing is like, even from behind, it's like, this guy doesn't look like he doesn't have, you know, <laughs> the, the, the stature anyway. Uh, oh, but so the last thing on my list is, uh, the whistling bird episode. Do you remember that one where the, like that nutty professor, uncle Oscar, he comes back in season three and he plays a different professor who creates a time machine. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank. That's fine. Uh, but in this episode, he comes up. His big experiment is uh, like glue, for like stamp glue that's flavored. That's his big invention. But it turns out that it's highly combustible and it could be weaponized. And so bad guys try to steal the formula. That's the basic setup for it. Okay. okay. But um, 
he ends up being forced to make uh, like two two vials of it, and uh, Superman drinks one of them to save the professor and Jimmy right right before it explodes, and you know like it like it explodes in his stomach and he's burping. He's like, oh. And then he tracks down the bad guys who have the other vial of it, and they're at this like remote cabin, and he bursts in and he sees it on the table and it's about to explode and the bad guys are there, and he it's this it's so good it's so good. Like he picks it up to drink it and he does a double take and he, you know, you see him recalling what he just went through <laughs> and he's like, Ugh, and he puts it down and he's like, you don't really deserve it, but come on, let's go. And like, he takes them out of the cabin and it blows up. <laughs> but it was this, and again, like going back to, I mean, and again, it's not like he left them there. Right. But it was this moment of like, oh, he's like, I don't feel like drinking this again. And he says to them, he's like, you really don't deserve it, but come with me. It was great. Oh man. I loved it. Interesting. Okay, yeah. I'll try to look for that one. I'll definitely. Uh, so before we take a commercial break and then finally get into the color episodes, anything else from season two uh, that you wanted to call out in our in our lightning round here? Uh, the only thing um, I'm going to ask you to hit on for a couple of seconds is the final, final episode of season two. Is that the one where he discovers a girl who's blind? Yeah. Could we let that breathe? Could you talk about that after the, the commercial break? And just talk about your impression of that. I would love to hear that. Well, I did. We, I did. I ran through it last time. I don't know that I really have anything else new to add, other than to say, like again, that it really is a standout scene where Clark, in his Clark Kent garb, uh, with his glasses removed, tries to convince this young girl who's blind that Superman is real. It, I mean, it's a beautiful scene, and that was definitely a highlight. Um, other than that, I think I said everything I, I needed to say last okay. time. Um, but yeah, that that is certainly one of my favorites. Uh, all right, so let's take a quick commercial break, and then we will move into the color seasons. All right. <laughs> we'll be right back. Movie lovers should check out this family of film festivals. The Brightside Tavern Film Festival in Jersey City, the Hang On To Your Shorts Film Festival in Asbury Park, and the Point Lookout Film Festival on Long Island. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Also... Be sure to listen to the podcasts hosted by the festival's organizer, C.J. Cullen. You can find the official Hang On To Your Shorts podcast, as well as the Cullen On Film podcast, via a shared universe network. And we're back. All right. The time has come at last <laughs> to talk about the color seasons, seasons three through six of Adventures of Superman. Now... You know, as we've explained to our audience, like you and I have been talking about this television series for months now, uh, you know, just, you know, for fun and in anticipation of doing these podcast episodes. And in virtually all of our conversations, you've you've warned me, right? You've given me a heads up that there's this massive shift. I mean, the fact that we go from black and white to color is really the least of it. There's this massive shift in tone and style of, of the show and performance as well in in a, in a number of respects. Uh, with with the start of season three. And I appreciate the heads up because as you always say, forewarned is forearmed. And um, I mean, honestly, if we, we boil it down, it really became a kid show uh, in starting with the third season. Um, for as much as, again, those earlier seasons and that first season in particular, you know, had had elements of, of noir and they were these crime dramas and, you know, you occasionally saw people die on screen and Superman's punching people. Like, all of that is is gone. Um, and so really at the most fundamental level, it really became a show aimed at a very young audience. Is that that fair to say? Totally. Spot on. Spot on. Yeah. 
I mean, if I could give you my thoughts, and I, I was going to follow your lead and then add color, but here's my thoughts. Yeah, a, a substantial change, a really a, a sea change between the end of season two, which was a, a transition season, and then three to six are so similar. But um, I'll say as a child, say when I was like five or six years old or seven or eight, it was very, very heartwarming and very enjoyable to watch these color episodes. Um, but, but they're definitely written for six-year-old, eight-year-olds, right? That age group, maybe nine-year-olds. But the gangsters are not not threatening. They're not belligerent. They're not, you know, they're caricatures. They're they're kind of mild, just almost cartoon-like gangsters. The threats are not as pronounced as you would see in seasons one and two. It's really written for six-year-olds, seven-year-olds. Um, it was very, very forward-thinking to film in color uh, because I think even though they filmed it in color, they still broadcast it in black and white for a number of years. Right. But to watch them now, they're hard to choke down. They're hard to choke down. And also one of the sad things is, as, as we prepared for this, it's really sad to see the change in George Reeves as an actor. I mean, clearly the scripts were not as thoughtful, not as intriguing. But he himself, you can see he, he you know, between the additional padding in, in the costume and I think his own aging, he's clearly not the lean um, athletic Superman you would see in Superman and the Mole Men or seasons one and two. He's a little paunchier. He's a little heavier. He's a little more plotting. Um, and that's just, that decline is kind of sad. And I also think the scripts, to me, it's, it's hard to watch those episodes. I echo pretty much all of that. And, on, you know, on the subject of Reeves, and, you know, we'll talk about his, you know, his, his passing, you know, momentarily. But on top of everything you said, you know, he was in his late 30s when he started Adventures of Superman, which is kind of crazy to think about because you think of, you know, modern day Superman actors, you know, almost in almost every instance, uh, you know, as far as I can remember, you know, they're like mid 20s when they start this, right? Yeah, Reeves was like 38, I think. Yeah. 38. So I was so impressed with, like I, I, I've said this probably eight times, I'm sorry, but his athleticism, especially that wrestling thing, uh, when he, he, you know, leaps over the, 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 the iron railing to the stairs and just jumps down there. Um, yeah. It's really sad. We could have not seen him in something else around 1954. Right. Yeah. Because I do think those last three seasons, you got to be a super loyalist um, to really choke those down. Yeah. So, I mean, here's the thing with the color seasons and it's funny because there are four color seasons, but they only did 13 episodes instead of 26. So the net effect is that you have an equal number of black and white episodes and color episodes. I watched all the black and white episodes and I watched about a quarter of the color episodes. Uh, there were a few that you had recommended. There were a few that I saw written about in articles. There were a few that I picked just based on the description. There were a number that were recommended to me uh, from members of a Facebook group that I'm a part of who who are fans of the show. So that was kind of how I selected, uh, you know, I cherry picked, uh, again, about 13 or 14 episodes across seasons three through six. So full disclosure, I did not watch every single color episode. And before I, I proceed, let me say this. I'm not 
And I would never try to take away from anyone's enjoyment of these episodes, right? And there may very well be people, you know, like yourself. I know, you know, now, you know, you, you certainly favor the, the, the earlier episodes. But, you know, there might be plenty of people, uh, you know, watching us or listening to us, you know, who have very fond memories of watching those color episodes as a kid with their friends or a sibling or a parent, and they mean a lot to them. Uh, or maybe they discover them later in life, but there's some something about them that really speaks to them and, and they find some charm in it. I don't know. Again, I'm not I'm not trying to make a case against them and for anyone who enjoys them, like right on. I'm glad you love them. I wish I did, to be honest. I mean, I think and I, I know I said this to you off mic, but when I started with the caller episodes, my gut reaction was they made me sad. They made me sad because of how much I loved the first two seasons. And to see the show change that much was disappointing. Uh, again, you had warned me, which was great. Uh, but, you know, it's still different when you actually experience it for yourself. And I watch them. I will say that by the time I got to the end of the series, you know, you do sort of get used to the new style and the rhythm of the show in the later seasons. So I found that, you know, I was able to kind of get over that initial, you know, because it is it's a very jarring shift to go, you know, right off the bat with through the time barrier at the start of season right. three. It's a, it is very jarring based on what the show had been. And it took me a little while to like really kind of get over that hump. And once I did, you know, I was able to enjoy the episodes well enough. And I think there are some gems in those final seasons, but yeah, it's just so divorced from the show that came before. Um, and, you know, it was, it was and, tough. Well said, well said. And, and if I may, to me, it was substantially different for two reasons. Clearly, the tone and the the strategic approach to writing and the content of the shows. But then also, as you pointed out, you've got Reeves who were all of a sudden, boy, you can tell when they're not using the, uh, the deep hair dye. Um, there's a number of things where he looks older and more plotting and heavier and I think it's, a, it's it's his own aging, but also more padding in the costume, because he doesn't look he doesn't look that um, padded uh, when he's wearing his Clark Kent suit. He he seemed a little more nimble in that. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's disappointing. It is sad because I think both of us have such intense appreciation for seasons one and two, and this is. You know, granted, they, it was oriented towards young children, but it is a letdown. You know, I, I, I was thinking about this a lot. I think had the first two seasons not existed, if we just had seasons three through wow. six and it was like, hey, it was this like silly kid show in the 50s. I, I don't I you know, I don't know that I would necessarily spend much time with it, but I wouldn't I'd be like, OK, like that's it is what it is. Like, you know, it's fine. It's the fact that we're, we were coming off of those two seasons that I really did love a lot. I think that's what made it hard to to really get into those color seasons. And to say something, I want to say this fast and then get back because I do want to ask you questions about yeah. the the uh, the the thirteen episodes or fourteen that you watched. But you asked this question to me uh, early in our discussion, and how my perception of George Reeves in seasons one and two informed me, and candidly. His strength, his purpose, his decisiveness, his, his charm and authority really turned me off to even the Adam West Batman. I mean, that was kind of silly and over the top. And having grown up with George Reeves being this assertive, decisive, pur purposeful uh, character, it really made it hard for me to, uh, to acclimate to Adam West Batman. 
Yeah. No, I, I could understand that for sure. Uh, you know, I guess we could maybe give some specific examples so, you know, people have a clear sense of what we're talking about with these color seasons. Uh, you know, again, where, where the earlier episodes were, you know, uh, you know, punchy and a little darker and, you know, um, had a little more forward momentum. I mean, these, these color episodes, uh, I don't know, they felt slower and softer and, and again, they just didn't really have much, um, energy or pacing yeah and like there really aren't any that i would describe as as thrilling you know in the way that i might for some of the the earlier episodes i mean again this wasn't on any of the lists really that i came across but i wanted to watch through the time barrier the season one premiere i wanted to watch the first episode of this new era and in terms of sort of uh establishing the new <laughs> the new version of the show i think it is effective you have professor twiddle is the same actor who played uncle oscar in in two of the the black and white episodes invents a time machine so it's like right off the bat as much as in season two you know the show leaned into into sci-fi you know a little bit more in a few instances you know right off the bat we have a time machine and our gang is transported to 50,000 bc and you know they're cracking jokes and laughing about it like I, no one really i mean the, the fact that they're time traveling in the first place of course is a big departure uh i think the reactions to it uh didn't really ring true based on <laughs> you know I, I think the versions of the characters that we had known you know they had lois in this like really skimpy like cavewoman outfit which you know is fine and everything but again you know just going back to the depiction of lois it's like i couldn't imagine the phyllis coates lois lane like in that in that situation you know it just felt kind of removed um, so, you know, right off the bat, you know, you, you have an episode like that, uh, you know, it got increasingly silly how nobody put two and two together about Clark and Superman being one and the same. I mean, in that time traveling episode, it's, like, it's a very small group of people <laughs> and it's like, he comes through as Clark, right? And then he's like, oh, I'm going to go explore. He changes into Superman and he's like, oh, I followed you. Like I flew through the time barrier. And Lois is like, well, can you go back? Because the professor needs some, uh, you know, needs some information that's on his desk. And he's like, oh, it's a one-way trip. I can't get back. <laughs> but then, of course, like when they all do, and then there's uh, there's ultimately like an element on, an, on a meteor or something that uh, that they need to power the time machine. And Superman gets it. And then Clark returns to make the journey back with them. And they're like, well, where's Superman? And Clark's like, oh, well, once he touched the mineral, then he was able to fly through the time barrier again. It's like, you know, again, you always have to have a suspension of disbelief with the whole dual identity thing. I get that. But I feel like in the later seasons, like it really, it really pushed it. Well said. But how yeah, would you, I agree. like, how would you, because I know I, I, you know, I mentioned this, but, you know, sort of the change in performance and, you know, certainly, you know, the physical appearance of Reeve was one thing, but in terms of how he played the character, but both both Clark and Superman, what sort of shift did you notice? Um, I noticed there were a few episodes in those where he's more patient, more caring, even when he talks to like Jimmy. Like uh, I remember there was one where I, I forget the the context, um, but this does speak to uh, the uh, the beneficence of uh the daily planet i think they bought a horse you know uh, some horse was going to be put out to pasture and you know perry decides to use the funds of the daily planet to buy the horse from his old friend but the horse is really sick and clark uh, you know jimmy says something and clark's very patient goes you know the horse is laying down and he goes no jim horses sleep standing up but he, he was very patient as he said it um 
Yeah, so both the rendition of Superman and the rendition of Clark, his Clark was not as um, intense or decisive. I, I still enjoyed his Clark, but both were much calmer, more um, you know, child oriented. Uh, it, it was also, it was almost a very paternal, loving uh, Superman. Uh, the Superman version. That was exactly the the word that uh, I've been kicking around. Paternal. I, I think you very much get that sense. And knowing that these episodes were really aimed at kids, it makes sense. Like I do, I do get it. But again, it just kind of takes, you know, it's funny. We've spent now, I don't know, three hours over these three plus hours over all these episodes, you know, talking how, talking about how much we like that decisive, strong Clark. And, you know, to kind of lose that dimension, uh, you know, for me as a viewer, as a fan, like it does take, take something away. Um, and you know, it's interesting with this paternal aspect because I agree and I could see how that could play well for kids. But to me, I don't know it, it, how do I put this? It's like, I think there can be a fine line between being paternal and being condescending. And I, 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 not that, I don't even know how to put this. It's not like he was blatantly talking down to characters, but it just felt like he was always like a step ahead of everyone. In a lot of the episodes that I watched, I kind of got that sense and it just took away there. To me, it just didn't feel like there was much tension. It's like he kind of always, like I said, always was kind of like a step ahead. Like he always had a plan that we weren't always in on, was always pretty calm, which, you know, again, maybe for kids, like they needed that, but I, I don't know. It's like, it just didn't seem like much really posed a challenge for him. And, and there really wasn't any risk. Right. You felt it, it, he was so calm and kind of so relaxed, you know, even as a child being seven or eight years old or nine years old. Well, I know how I know how it's going to end. Yeah. He's not stressed about it. You know, he's just going to calmly, you know, we'll let this thing play out. And at the end, we'll just hit reset and everything will be cool. Um, yeah. So th- there wasn't a sense of stress or risk or jeopardy. Um, yeah. Yeah. May I assist? What were the, what were some of the episodes you watched? Did you watch the episode where he goes to Paris? Yeah, I watched that. But so back, going back to season three, real quick, I did watch the bully of Dry Gulch. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. Which um, Myron Healy played uh, the cowboy who threatens Jimmy. Yeah, and I mean, so I take it you re- you remember this episode well? Yes. And interestingly, there was a comic book about this. Uh, this was from a Jimmy Olsen story that kind of was printed uh, almost simultaneous in time. But yeah, I do remember the bully of Dry Gulch. Yes. And actually, I want to thank you real quick because you sent me a list uh, of the comic stories and and uh, episodes of Adventures of Superman that matched up. And actually, last night I read uh, Menace from the Stars, uh, the Panic in the Sky takeoff. Uh, so it was cool to see the story play out in a different medium. Not to put down the comic, but I think, you know, you really lose something with without having that performance, you know, that we've talked about from Panic in the Sky. It's really not the same effect. It I agree. The, it, it hits a lot of the same beats, right? Like Superman tries to stop the asteroid. He loses his memory. He thinks the power comes from the costume. You know, he figures out what he needs to do. He saves the day. But yeah, it lost. It really lost something for sure. I love that 20 or 30 seconds in that Panic of the Sky where, like we, we've said this seven or eight times, the turmoil and the stress and the frustration and just the anxiety he's going through when he's trying to discern his identity, it translates much more powerfully to the screen and to Reeves from an acting standpoint. For sure. But I, digre- I digress. 
I'm dying to hear the episodes you chose to see if I remember so I can throw uh, a perspective on it. Sure. I mean, let me just say about the bully of dry gulch, you know, so yeah, the basic premise, right? Lois and Jimmy are, are, you know, uh, you know, spending the night in this, in this little, you know, Western town. And there's this bully who, you know, seemingly is shooting people on site if they rub him the wrong way. And, uh, they throw Jimmy in jail and he's going to get shot at high noon and they call Clark. There is one, there are a couple of funny moments, which I, I will give them that. But again, I think this is a perfect example of a show really lacking in any real danger or tension because especially once Clark arrives, like there's no threat to him. Like he could easily end this like any second, right? But he, as Clark in particular, he like really takes this guy to take like they play poke like he plays poker with the bully right and the and the bully has a, a trick deck of cards and clark <laughs> uses his heat vision to to burn them uh, and then he uses his superpowers to cheat himself to kind of teach the guy a lesson and so it's like I, I don't know maybe for kids was it a helpful episode in terms of how to deal with the bully i mean maybe and he even i think he literally says to jimmy at the end like most bullies like they'll you know like they'll back down if you could or something like that uh but again it just it there really was no, there was no tension. It was like, clearly this is something that will, can end the second that Clark wants it to end sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but there were the two funny things when he, uh, when he burns up the guy's trick deck of cards and the guy's like, Oh, I, I just got those cards. Clark goes, well, that's life. <laughs> he was on. So there was funny. And then when, uh, Oh, this, this actually, uh, yeah, again, there are things to enjoy in these episodes. When Lois calls Clark, uh, when Jimmy's in trouble, right? Clark is initially like pretty dismissive of Jimmy being in danger and almost accuses Lois of like, of making a joke. She's like, Oh, come on, Lois. Like, you know, enough with this. And then Lois is like, and he's making like googly eyes at me, the bully. And Clark is like, what? <laughs> he like races out of there. <laughs> so again, like it was, the thing is, it's like, it was funny, but it felt again, it just like felt very removed from what we had seen on the show before. Um, so here, let me, I wrote down the ones, I wrote down the ones that I watched. Let's see. Uh, well, let me just, let me just rattle them off, and then uh, we can circle back to them. So I said through the time barrier: Lucky Cat, uh, Seven Souvenirs, uh, Bully of Dry Gulch, The Girl Who Hired Superman, Wedding of Superman, oh, yeah. The Deadly Rock, The Phantom Ring, uh, Peril in Paris, Divide and Conquer, Superman's Wife. And then the final three episodes of the series, which George Reeves directed, uh, Brainy, Burro, Perils of Fate, and All That Glitters. So those were the ones that I watched across the, the f final four seasons. Interesting. Interesting. I'm glad you watched. I do want to, I definitely want to jump into um, Reeves as a director with those last three. But um, from the ones you mentioned, I do remember... Uh, what, uh, what did you say? Divide and conquer was one of them. Yeah. Which and, circles um, back to what you had brought up before about these new powers that he would, uh, occasionally develop in these later episodes. And that wasn't the only time. And, and for the, I'll, I'm, I'm going to let you do it. Cause I think you'll be more succinct than I would, but if you, you whatever order you want to discuss this, but when you're ready, I'll let you give the synopsis for, uh, divide and conquer yeah i mean real quick i mean the the long and short of it is there's an international incident and superman surrenders himself to arrest and uh and so he's in jail but he also needs to protect the president of of is it mexico I'm, i can't remember if it was 
Mexico or, or, or another country, but in any event. Uh, so he's in jail and he also needs to protect someone. He needs to be in two places at once. What's a Superman to do? Luckily, there's this professor we've never heard of before, or maybe he was, I don't, I don't know if he was in another episode that I didn't watch, but he calls in this professor who like flies in immediately and they have this conversation in the jail cell where the professor theorizes that, you know, his basically like his cells are so dense that if he concentrated hard enough, he could separate them and divide himself into two, which he does, but he'll only have half the strength and abilities. And it seems like he has even less than that uh, when he, I mean, do you remember like once he divides himself in two, yeah, like they're, they can barely stand. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's very, he's really weak. Yeah. Um, but I do remember, and, and I'm sorry, this is for me, you know, going back 40 or 50 years, but I do remember he's in, like, as you said, either Mexico or some South American country. Um, he needs to honor the law. So he gets put in jail mm -hmm. and then he does, you know, his, he separates his molecules and becomes a perfect copy of himself. Um, and I think he goes back to his hotel room and puts on his Clark costume to fool Lois, but he's tremendously weak. Um, and there's a similar episode. I don't know if you got to see it. I think it was called like the mysterious cube or something. I did not watch that one. So yeah, tell me about that one. So my memory of that is there is, and I, I'd have to dig this up, but there's, there's some gangster and somehow he goes in this cube. That's basically eight foot by eight foot. And he figures, you know what? I'm going to run out the statute of limitations. Now how he got food and water and, um, you know, sanitary hygiene stuff in there. I don't know. This is like really cramped, but the, the, substance that created this this mysterious cube that this guy's hiding in um somehow superman's able to almost become like the flash and vibrate his molecules to such a degree that he can go through this um this substance he can just become intangible and go through it but like the scientists go look there's a lot of risk there you might get trapped in there you know we don't know if this will work and I don't think he goes all the way through. He kind of, he convinces the gangster that he is going to do it, or he goes in and resets the clock. And then the guy comes out early, and it's still within that seven years. Um, um, and he's, Superman's not at risk as much as he leads people to believe he's at risk. Right? He understates it. But once again, they come up with this brand new power, and we never see it again. Same thing with the divide and conquer. He's able to split into two and we never see it again. Yeah. Like, again, it, it's interesting. And I know certainly while I haven't read, you know, many of the stories, like I know, you know, especially in the Silver Age, it's like he always had, you know, there were, you know, there are other powers and, and even in the Donner movies, you know, the, the, uh, the, the kiss or turning back time or like, or the, the shield that he's able to peel off yeah, of his yeah. costume, like all that stuff. Uh, I've never been a fan of that. I guess I just always feel like the guy has enough powers as it is. And, you know, I, again, I reject a lot of the common criticisms about the character. One of them being that he is too powerful, but it's like, if that is a criticism, if there are people who feel like he has too much power to begin with, it's like, why give, why give him even more? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. You know, Agreed. Uh, and it's like this, like, especially with dividing himself, it's like, boy, that would have come in handy in the human bomb episode for sure. <laughs> oh, or, or to your point, um, to dispel the, the suspicions that he and Clark and Superman are the same person. Yep. Cause he, he clearly did it in this one when he's Clark back at the hotel room. 
Yeah. They re- I mean, I know I, I touched on this before, but they really lay that on thick, the sort of that wink to to us, the audience, and even, you know, kind of, you know, uh, jabbing the other characters uh, and, and, and them jabbing Clark about him being Superman. I mean, like, almost every episode ends with, uh, you know, with some sort of... Uh, remark about like, well, maybe you're really Superman and, you know, he's, you know, he's got some maybe sort of clever, I am, Lois. maybe I am, you know, that sort of thing. Or like, I, you know, I wouldn't, you know, uh, I wouldn't be here without Clark or, you know, something like that, uh, which is, you know, it, it is fine. Um, and obviously these were all standalone episodes and, and like you yourself said, right? Like there were plenty of episodes you missed, right? So any episode that someone was watching might be their first episode or, or, or something like that. So I, you, now, know, you watched, enough. you watched, what was it? The girl who hired Superman? Yes. That's hard to choke down, buddy. What? So, <laughs> so again, like I like I said before, like I noticed there were a few, at least from the ones that I watched, there were a few in these later seasons where there was more of an attempt to like trick Superman. And so in this one, you have uh, uh, money counterfeiters who basically come up with this plan uh, to have Superman smuggle in uh plates to, to create yes. counterfeit money counterfeit, yeah yeah right to, to, to another country well i just watched it a few, a few days ago don't give me too much credit <laughs> but they use this young woman this young heiress uh who is not in on the plan um but to hire superman right and the money will go to charity paris hilton night circa 1956 or something like that yes the thing that bugged me and again this goes back to what i'm saying about just like the lack of of real tension in the episode is Superman figures out their plan off screen. Like he leaves with the plate, which he thinks is uh, film uh, from a photo that was all taken. Right. So he leaves with that, with that cartridge, which is actually the counterfeit plates and off screen, he realizes what has happened. Right. But he comes back as Clark and he's like, and he explains to the bad guys, like, oh, Superman, you know, figured out what was going on. And he sent me here to let you know the police are coming and, you know, for me to kind of get yeah. you to come along peacefully. Why not just come back as Superman? It's like, it drove me nuts. Because at this point, Lois and Jimmy and the heiress, they've been put in like this, un- this lead-lined bunker, right? And of course, that's where they bring Clark. And of course, Clark can't reveal his secret. And it's just like, what was the point of this? Uh, and then, if I may, Anthony, what <laughs> sickened me, what really, really, really does not hold up well is early in the episode, he does some special uh, displays of his superpowers for this girl. And I think it it was photographs were taken. Mm -hmm. But like all he does is like they do reverse photography where he jumps up on top of the uh, the shelf over the fireplace. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) So the poor guy, all he does is jump down and they show it in reverse uh, photography. Um. (laughs) <laughs> and and again, you could clearly see he was not the trim boxer um, from season one or the Moleman episode. Uh, there was a lot of padding in that costume then. Yeah, I love too though. He uh, when he arrives, he like busts through the window, and he's like, "Well, you wanted a thrilling entrance, and I assume you have the money to repair." <laughs> but it's like tearing the house apart. Uh, yeah. So again, that one was just kind of frustrating. Uh, it just, again, the tension really felt non-existent, you know, or, or manufactured at best. I, I don't know. That one was, was kind of tough. I was surprised you had such a reaction to it, though, but it, I get I get why. Yeah. I get why. Yeah. Well, but also, I mean, we discussed this. There's a certain degree of suspension of disbelief, right? But even from a logical standpoint, why did he go back there as Clark? I mean... Unless they figured, you know what, we're running short. We gotta, we need another two or three minutes. Um, 
and we'll get Clark down in the uh, lead line bunker. Um, and then he has to have all the stress over not revealing his identity. It, it, it was really like, it was almost like they were making it up as they went along in that when it really defied logic. Yeah. You know what? I would, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if that is what happened. You know, you might hit the nail on the head. You know, they might've been, you know, at page, you know, 15 of the script and like, oh man, <laughs> we got another 10 pages. I don't know. Uh, can we talk about a pair of episodes that I think thematically kind of go together? The Wedding of Superman and Superman's Wife. Please, please. Uh, You're familiar I, with I, both? I want one caveat. I definitely want to chat with you about uh, The Deadly Rock. Yes. So after, I agree with you and I think those two that you just mentioned, uh, there is serendipity between those two. So The Wedding of Superman Lois has a dream where she marries Superman. I mean, that's the that's the setup for the episode. And Superman's wife, to be honest, the reason I watched this was that our mutual friend, Steve Odo, oh. the former owner of Alternate Realities, the comic shop where we met and hung out, uh, requested that we discuss it. Yes. And it's, it's his favorite episode. He thinks she is gorgeous. I texted him after I watched it. And I said, I said, I watched Superman's wife. I said, I take it. You like it because of the actress. I said, is there anything else that stood out to you about it? No response. <laughs> no response. <laughs> so I guess it was really that. I mean, you know, so in that episode, there's a, a you know, a, a criminal mastermind who's in the shadows. And no one knows who he is. And so uh, Henderson brings in this young woman, Sergeant O'Hara, and Superman instantly has an idea. We don't know his full plan yet, but he instantly says, will you marry me? And uh, they pretend to be married uh, all. Did did Superman's plan track for you? Like, it seemed like there were a lot of leaps that 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 he made. Like, right. What it comes down to is that he assumes if they put the word out that Superman is getting married, that this unknown bad guy will will kidnap the wife. Right. In order to to keep Superman at bay. And it ends up proving mm -hmm. true. That is exactly what happens. Um, but I don't know. It felt like, felt like there was a lot that had to happen. That he was, he was speculating on. Yeah. My only sense is I remember watching that as a child. I remember thinking uh, to give Steve credit, she, she was gorgeous. Absolutely. But, uh, to, to your listeners will love this because we've spoken about Steve a lot over the past three weeks. Steve has said, have you spoken to Anthony about, uh, Sergeant O'Hara and being Superman's wife, she's gorgeous. And Steve constantly goes, you know, you know, who's going to look at Lois when she's around? Um, uh, but yeah, there, even as a child, there were like, wow, this is pretty abrupt. Like they're moving really fast. You know, uh, I know he wants to use her as kind of bait or the uh, tethered goat or, you know, uh, the fulcrum to get to this, get this mastermind to come out of hiding. But, yeah, it was a part of – I also think, if I may, so many of the stories in the 50s and the 60s were about Lois's aspirations to marry Superman and, wow, I'd love to marry him. Um, and maybe this tapped into that and just opened things up for Lois to be jealous. I think it, it syncs up with comic book stories of the, of the time. I, yeah. And, and again, like I've said, you know, and, and I, this will change as we move forward on this podcast, because I do plan to, uh, you know, read as much as I can of these pre-crisis stories that I've only read about. Uh, but as of this recording, it's like, yeah, I haven't read, you know, those, those comic stories where she's, you know, pining, uh, to be Superman's wife. 
Uh, but I agree that I think this is very much in the spirit of those stories. The, I guess the two things that stood out to me about that episode, yeah, one is, you know, Lois's jealousy and it felt, and I guess this probably is in keeping with the comics, like it felt cruel on Superman's part to just kind of like keep her twisting in the wind about this. It, there were a lot of stories in the 60s where really the editors editors were really misogynistic and they really pandered to the um, the inferiority of women and, and dismissive and put down. It must have really, I hate to say it, there must have been some cats in Mort Weisinger's head, you know, because a lot of these stories had not just to Lois, but also to Jimmy, you know, uh, cruel pranks and stuff like that. Um, uh, apparently there was, you know, a good reason at the end, but um, just weird, weird stuff like, well, Jimmy, I'll adopt you and then, then I'll just treat you like crap. But I'm really doing that to fool these gangsters or fool these, uh, fool these, uh, the anti-Superman revenge squad or something, something like that. But yeah, uh, really, I agree with you. A degree of um, just meanness. And that's, I think, you know, I didn't fully articulate this earlier, but when I was talking about like that line between paternal and condescending and, and this idea that like Superman's always a step ahead, you know, I, I think like this is a good example. It's like he clearly has a plan, but he's not cluing anyone else in on it. And and not like he's lording it over them, but it, it does kind of border on the cruel that especially that he sees Lois has feels some sort of way about the fact that Superman married someone and the fact that it came as a surprise, like again, the fact that he just kind of keeps her twisting in the wind about it, as opposed to like pulling her aside and being like, listen, this is a, a plan. You yeah, know? Yeah. Uh, it just felt, um, you know, was that the, was that the episode where they're in a bathosphere at the yeah, end? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I do remember that now. And even at the end when like Lois is finally connecting the dots and he goes, you know, Hey, will you get out of here? Cause <laughs> yeah, I know <laughs> I got to let this thing crash down in the sea, the bottom of the sea so I can, fly up um he's kind of like hey let's move it along huh yeah and then you know at the end of the episode you know of course everyone knows you know what what the plan was and they're back in perry's office and uh, uh both sergeant o'hara and lois are talking about how they love to marry superman and like they say it at the same time and everyone laughs and again i think representative of the times you know not uh you know certainly not very progressive in in its you know uh examination of the male female dynamic but you know again the other thing that kind of comes to mind is and again i i know this was the 50s and i know it was a kid show and maybe that's my answer i i guess that is my answer but you know it's like why why not ever have clark or superman on this show pursue a genuine romance at all i wondered I wondered about that in our prior discussion. I mean, we've spoken about the attributes of Reeves' portrayal of Clark being decisive, very confident, uh, charming. Um, I, I, they never did anything where there might be someone, even uh, some uh, gangster's girlfriend or some other woman who was attracted to him. And I, I just never understood that. Quite frankly, this was really the first time they ever had um, someone who was not um, a, a single mother with uh, a child with polio or a blind child. They never had any other um, really society type or journalist or anyone uh, uh, show any attraction or interest in Clark whatsoever. Yeah, you know, again, like, it's just, it's just kind of funny. And especially with Sergeant O'Hara, it's like, as has been established, gorgeous woman, you know, she's, 
you know, she's a police sergeant, so she can take care of herself. It's not a matter of like, oh, you know, she'll be in harm's way, right? In fact, he put her in harm's way for this ruse. <laughs> so it's like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, again, I don't know that there necessarily was place a place for that type of story in this show. May, I guess not. But, you know, it would have been interesting even just to have it explored. Like even for Superman to say like, you know, I, you know, I'm fully devoted to protecting Metropolis. Like I, I, I don't have time for romance or something. I don't know. Like it was just kind of odd. It's like, well, why, why not? That's why I'm, yeah. the, you know, the sort of the sister episode to this, the wedding of Superman where Lois has this dream where she's marrying Superman and Clark is going to be the best man was, was interesting. Um, again, I don't think it did much for the feminist movement, but it was interesting because it was, as far as I know, like the only instance in this show where you saw a, an actual romance between the two of them. And yes, it was a dream, but you got to see them play it. In, in a sad fashion, Anthony, I don't ever remember seeing that episode. Oh, okay. It, so I, I'm I'm counting on you. You're conveying to me the, the ingredients of it. I don't remember seeing it. I mean, I know it syncs up with many comic book stories of the 50s and 60s where she might have, a, you know, a bump on the head or, you know, she has a dream and imagines an imaginary tale, but on television, I don't remember seeing this. I don't remember. I, I will say, and I'm going to ask you to expand. This does seem very similar to the final episode of the entire uh, series. Um, where in the, in that 104th episode, Lois and Jimmy get superpowers. Um, so again, the dream sequence, they didn't do it a lot, but, you know, it, it was kind of like, hey, boop, we got a half an hour episode and we can hit the uh, the reset button at the end. Yeah. I mean, the, the setup for the episode was that, uh, you know, Superman is meeting with Perry White and Inspector Henderson about taking down, you know, a, a crime syndicate. And Lois comes in because she needs help. Perry's uh, put her in charge of answering the Lonely Hearts column and giving relationship advice while the regular writer is out. And she comes in looking for help. And honestly, and again, this really didn't, age well i mean they're they're all pretty dismissive of her and you know she asks superman for help and and again even superman is basically like listen this is not my deal sort of thing right and so she goes home and she's like reading all of these letters as she falls asleep and then you know uh she has what we find out at the end that it's all a dream uh that superman proposes marriage he reveals his identity to her and she has not much of a reaction like and that's one of the like missed opportunities i think it's like if ever you were going to do this on the show, like a dream episode is fine. Like it would have been interesting to like really let them have it out over the fact that he kept the secret from her from all those years, but she accepts it pretty quickly. Uh, and, you know, and then of course it all turns out to be a dream, but I mean, you see them very tender with each other, you know, Superman and Lois. And, and again, it was just, it was really interesting to see because it was the only time I think that you got to uh, over the 104 episodes. Yeah, I mean, in, in different actress, I thought there were some interesting, in the very, very, very first season, I thought there was great chemistry between George Reeves and Phyllis Coates. Uh, there definitely seemed to be some flirtation and uh, just great chemistry where they're each very interested in the other. Um, but to your point, boy, you didn't see a lot of that from either from a directing standpoint or from like, Hey, you know, we got to crank out two episodes in the next five days. So stand on your mark and say your lines. Uh, you know, I still 
we, we still have so much to cover. But, uh, you know, I know you wanted to talk about the Deadly Rock, right, where Clark's old friend Gary Allen is mysteriously Please. affected by kryptonite and, you know, it, it weakens him and, and causes him to pass out, but then also grants him invulnerability. Um, and I know that's that's one of your favorites of the of the color episodes. What do you like about that one? I liked it because um, I thought it was so intriguing, right? Now, again, it was very uneven. They don't make it clear how this one individual, an old friend of Clark's, is susceptible. They never make it clear what caused him to be affected by kryptonite. But again, it, you know, it's, it's, I remember watching it and being just so fascinated where uh, he's at an airport and some bad guy comes in with a kryptonite and it causes great pain to this. Uh, Gary Allen is the, the uh, character's name, the friend. And he gets really sick and nauseous and debilitated and weak. And then Clark and Jimmy go to see him and Clark likewise hides it. That it causes pain to him. But then when the kryptonite goes away, he kind of recovers. Um I thought they could have done more with that. I really did. And I also, I've seen the actor who portrayed Gary Allen in other TV shows of the time. And I thought that would have been just kind of intriguing if they could have done something else with it. Uh, But they never explained why he was susceptible to it. I think they said something about, well, you were in that plane crash in Africa and okay <laughs> how did that cause it yeah um, well it's funny though because i thought of you i mean i knew you liked this episode but there are numerous references to uh the asteroid that superman destroyed in panic in the sky so your favorite episode got a call back and there were very few of those on the yeah. show you know so i yeah. thought that was kind of cool and yeah it was an interesting uh interesting idea i definitely i watched that because i know you recommended it uh and that was certainly what, one of the stronger ones what did you think of it yeah, I liked it. I mean, I think really for all the reasons that uh, you said, I mean, it was intriguing, even just initially as they were figuring out like why he was passing out in the first place, you know, uh, you know, like he goes back to the counter and the bag's still there and like he instantly <laughs> passes out again yeah. and they, you know, they finally piece it together. Well, you know, one thing that was interesting was that because uh, I thought about this with, with a few episodes, like, you know, Clark's old friend, Gary Allen, right, who we've never met or heard of before. And there are other episodes too, um, is it the double trouble episode from the black and white years where uh, it's, like, it's like Superman has, or is it Superman or Clark? I think it was Clark has like this uh, U.S. colonel friend who's stationed in Germany. Oh, yes, yes, yes. He goes over to Germany or something like that. Yeah. So he has all of these. Fr- it's like, <laughs> I guess a lot happens off screen sort of thing. And because even when you go back to the origin episode, it's like he goes, it seems like he goes straight from Smallville to Metropolis. Uh, so it's like clearly he's he's building this network, you know, off screen. <laughs> well, the the thing I always loved about those, um, like you said, the, the the double episode where some guy's got a twin brother and he goes back to Germany and he uses military intelligence, or even the stolen costume, uh, the wrestling one, Clark's network and his connection of people outside. They all respect him. They don't, they're not dismissive. They're not, they don't denigrate him. They don't, they're very, they they treat him as an equal. And I really liked that. I always liked that. Um, I will say, I disliked the ending of the Deadly Rock. I thought that was so contrived and, and really even that 
did not suspend disbelief enough the, when he gets like the uh, the weed killer and uses it to burn the kryptonite. Right, right. I thought that was like, geez, really? Um, but it was their formula. Like, okay, tick tock, tick tock. Lois and Jimmy are tied up. We gotta we gotta wrap this up in another two minutes. Yeah, but you but your you know your point is a good one. It's like it is an interesting idea that like there's a, there's a human who has. Who, who is affected by kryptonite and the way he's affected is interesting, but just the fact that he's affected by kryptonite is, is something different. And, you know, again, I guess, you know, it's easy for us to look back and be like, Oh, I wish they would have, you know, would have done more with this. You know, I don't know that they had, you know, the, the motivation or the, like, I, that's just well, not what the show was, you know, but yeah, it's, I mean, but you look at this, you look at a lot of these and it's like, Oh man, like there are missed opportunities like to tell like really interesting stories. Absolutely. That's my. You said that better than I could have. I, I will say they did paint themselves into a corner. And again, I like the actor who portrayed uh, Gary Allen. I, I've seen him in other stuff, and I like him. Um, but they, you know, really like. Well, geez, you're unconscious and invulnerable. That's really not going to set up too many plot lines. <laughs> I know it's. <laughs> I know but it's true. It, it, I was like, All right. <laughs> It would have been interesting, though, if they could have used him more as an investigator or something where he gets into some trouble and he you don't need the invulnerability ploy, but Superman has to come and rescue him. I think that would have been intriguing. You know, if they played more on his his non um, impact of the kryptonite. But um, the interesting, in, interesting factoid, that actor. Uh, played Batman in the 1940s Republic serial of Batman, Batman and Robin. So uh, I find it interesting that they, they tapped into that actor. Oh, that's cool. That's like, you know, when I rewatched Hollywood land in advance of today, Ben Affleck played George Reeves, Diane Lane played oh, uh, Tony yeah, Maddox. Yeah. So it's like you have this romance between Bruce Wayne and uh, and Martha Kent. It was it was it kind was of so weird to weird watch. And creepy for me to watch that in Hollywood Land. It really creeped me out when Affleck and Diane Lane are in bed together, and I flashed back to uh, Affleck saving Superman's mother. Um, yeah, it, it really creeped me out. So actually, that's a good segue because you know I wanted to talk about you know. You know, sadly, Reeves passing uh, the final episodes of the show that he directed uh, and then, you know, the aborted attempts to keep the show going uh, before before we dive into like our final piece here. Uh, I know you'd wanted to say something about the radio show. What what uh, did you want to share with us about that? Oh, the only thing I wanted to offer in terms of the radio show. And um, I've learned from my past experience. So if you ever want to tee this up for an abbreviated thing. Uh, the two points, and I can expand on this only at your discretion, but that radio show ran for over 11 years. It had almost 2,100 episodes, but I'll say both the TV show and the comics benefited from the radio show because the radio show was the thing that created and introduced um, the Daily Planet, Jimmy, Perry White, Inspector Henderson. It introduced Kryptonite. And it also uh, offered the first real substantive team up between Superman and Batman in 1945. So that radio show, I think, really uh, opened the door for the other mediums to tap into it. No, well said. I mean, and you know, I certainly know of the radio show, and 
you know, and, and what it added to the mythology. I, I'd be lying if I said I've listened to them. Uh, I, I might have heard some snippets here and there. I, I certainly have, uh, but I've never really uh, delved into it. But that, you know, I don't know, that might be fodder for an upcoming episode or, or something like that. Uh, I know the two things that you had shared with me that I found fascinating. One was the, uh, the origin episode where Superman emerges fully grown so, as yeah. an adult from the rocket, which to me is like, it seems like such a bizarre choice. And I know I've, I've said this on the show before, but it's like, that's the part of his journey that I feel often in a lot of these tellings get shortchanged, like the decision to become Superman. I mean, here it's just like, <laughs> it's not there at all. Uh, so that was interesting. And then, you know, we know, you know, Kryptonite made its debut on the radio show. And the reason for it, I, I found fascinating. The I, actor, I didn't know this part of it. Yeah. The actor, uh, this fellow, Bud Collier, uh, did the voice of Superman for over 10 years. And he was also the voice of Superman on the Fleischer cartoons. And he was the voice of Superman in the mid-1960s, those cartoons, filmation cartoons. But he needed a vacation. <laughs> you know, I think he did it for years and years and years. And they did this uh, three times a week, every other day for 15 minutes or half an hour. Um, so again, there were 2,100 episodes. But he needed a vacation. So the writers came up with the idea, let's get this meteor, this mineral from his planet that, you know, makes is poisonous to him. So for two weeks, while the true actor's on vacation, they just had some other guy just, you know, groaning and moaning, you know, off in the distance as though he were being uh, radiation poisoned by kryptonite. That's so funny. And then, uh, again, as far as the other precursors to Adventures of Superman, I know I, I mentioned and briefly spoke about the Kirk Allen oh. movie serials last time. There was one thing that I know I had shared with you off mic, and I, I'll mention it here because I do think it's funny. And I might be exaggerating a little bit, but I feel like I'm capturing the spirit of the scene. In the first installment, they go through the origin and they hit the same beats, right? We go from you know uh, Krypton to Smallville. And then we see a young adult, Clark, in the Kent family living room. He's in his suit and he's reading a book. And there's just this funny moment between Jonathan, where I don't know, no, they're not even Jonathan and Martha yet, but Ma and Pa Kent. And they kind of look at each other like, like, all right, you better say something to him. And I think it's, it's Pa who's like, you know, son, you have these gifts, you know, you really should use them. <laughs> but it just, I don't know, it just, it really made me laugh. It's this idea of like, he's just sitting there reading and they're like, we've got to tell this kid he's got to do something. Uh, so that, that was kind of funny, but, but didn't you say that, okay, uh, I want to finish my book right now. <laughs> I mean, but like basically, because even then it, I don't know that he fully takes it to heart because he doesn't take the next step in his journey until his parents pass. And it's like, however long that takes, uh, it, it was just kind of interesting. I thought if I may say this for the benefit of your audience, yeah. um, so I did listen to the first, uh, two episodes I got them on, on YouTube or somewhere. I got them. And the very first episode tracks perfectly with the TV show uh, Superman on Earth. I mean, the you know, the Council of Wisdom and Krypton and Zorin and, and the high, you know, the leader of the council. And you know, the whole thing for, hey, we need to build rocket ships to take us off this planet. It tracks perfectly. But then season, uh, episode two starts out with long story short um this grandfather and grandson are getting on a trolley to go to the state fair and the conductor they're the only two on the conductor goes look i gotta go get a drink of water it's really hot today so the trolley the brakes fall apart and it starts screening down this huge hill but superman is like a mile up in the sky watching the whole thing 
he rescues them. And basically, he introduces himself as, I'm Superman, right? <laughs> so he got out of that rocket full-blown, apparently in costume, um, and um, he swears the, the grandfather and grandson to secrecy. But he goes, you know, I, le- I need to learn about your planet. And the grandson, who's like nine years old, goes, you know what? You ought to work for a newspaper, and you ought to call yourself Clark Kent. And that's it. Done. Done. Wow. But I will say, Anthony, to your point, they retrofitted it like five years later where they overrode that origin and they made it sync up more with the origin we're familiar with. All right. Where, where, but, but that was years down the road. Um, the other thing that's interesting is apparently um, in the radio series, uh, Eben died in a fire. So for a while, Clark was just living with Ma, uh, Ma Kent, Sarah. Um, but yeah, they, they speak about how Eben died in a fire early in, uh, in, in the interaction. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the Superman mythology does owe a great debt to the radio show for a lot of what it introduced. I'm, I'm thankful that certain aspects did not carry over. Uh, but, you know, clearly it introduced a lot. And that's something that, you know, it's kind of on my list to sort of uh, delve into at some point. Uh, so again, we'll, we'll circle back to the, the final few episodes of the show that Reeves directed, but I think, you know, now might be an appropriate time to sort of, you know, examine the, the end of the show and the aftermath. And sadly, the passing of George Reeves, you know, his death in, uh, 1959, right. At, uh, shortly after the conclusion of the sixth season of Adventures of Superman, uh, died in what was ruled a suicide, but, uh, you know, there's long been a lot of controversy and mystery surrounding his death. And uh, this was the subject of the motion picture Hollywoodland, uh, which came out in 2006. Uh, I saw that. It's interesting because as I talked about last time, right, like I did not watch Adventures of Superman growing up like it. I knew of it, but that was it. Right. I, I didn't really have much context. And so I kind of a lot of what I knew about George Reeves and the show came from watching Hollywoodland. Uh, so I did see Hollywoodland in theaters when it came out. I think I watched it one more time on DVD, and then I watched it yet again uh, a few nights ago in anticipation of our discussion. Uh, and and I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, for anyone who's curious at all about George Reeves and and specifically about the circumstances surrounding his death, I do recommend that they watch it. Oh, and you very graciously uh, gave it to me as a gift. Well, we kept talking about it and you hadn't seen it. And I was like, well, this guy's got to see it. And I figured, yeah. again, I figured you would appreciate it. So I'm glad oh, that I I'm did. glad you enjoyed it. I did. One thing I'll say, and this is very personal. You've galvanized and energized me. and we, You've increased my appreciation, especially for George Reeves and his portrayal of Superman. And it's, it's, just heightened my interest but to go from the first two seasons to the last four seasons to hollywood land it's very you you feel very sad at the end and i really my heart goes out to george reeves my heart goes out to him because he seemed to love acting but he really didn't you know it's very tragic the way the whole thing evolved and unfolded and like you said there is controversy i can remember reading the different thoughts like he apparently it was an open secret in Hollywood that he um, his girlfriend was Tony Mannix, who was the wife of some um, mob boss. But it was an open secret. You know, everyone knew they would go to parties together and 
pictures were taken, and she took care of the boy. Yeah, he was, a, he was on, a kept man, uh, especially yeah, as depicted kept. in the in the movie where she buys him a house and, and all these yeah. gifts and everything. And yeah, her husband was Eddie Mannix, the general manager of MGM Studios. And there was this there was this really funny scene. And, I, I, you know, I'm not positive if this was you know true to life or not, but, you know, they're all at dinner together. It's it's Eddie and Tony and George Reeves and Eddie's mistress. So like you said, I mean, it was very much this open secret that he was having an affair with this woman. Right. But then the other the other elements that I remember reading is that he broke up with Tony Mannix and uh, the woman that he became infatuated with. There was a lot of stories that he fell head over heels in love with her. This younger woman just really uh, infatuated with her. But there were stories that she was a con artist and she was not really. You know, even even separate from the the movie, she was not really a stand up person. She was really a con artist, and then also the theory that he got so depressed that he may have killed himself, committed suicide. But there were a lot of bizarre things, like you know, they cleaned up the the room in which the shots were fired, in which he was found very quickly. There was no proper police investigation, and this whole thing just was never never reconciled, never understood. So you had these three diverse theories floating around. You know, did did um, Eddie Mannix off because his wife was grieving and hurt because she was spurned? Was it an accident with the the new um, the woman he was engaged to his fiance, or did he do it just via depression? It's um, I can really appreciate the scene in there when the young boy, Adrian Brody's son, is just so grieving and so hurt. But when I look at this from seasons one and two, the bit of the, the decline to seasons three through six. And then to this movie, boy, you just, it, it just breaks your heart at the end. It's very tragic. A hundred percent. And I, and you know, that's the thing. It's like, regardless of how he died, you know, unfortunately we'll likely never know for sure what happened. Uh, but either way, no matter which scenario, you know, is true, it's, it's a sad and tragic ending, uh, you know, for this guy. And it's sad to see, uh, yeah, the movie is really interesting. I mean, it, it, really presents those three scenarios, right? And so the main timeline in the movie, the main storyline is Adrian Brody's character, a private eye who's investigating uh, Reeves' death at the behest of his his mother. Uh, but we also have flashbacks to key moments uh, in Reeves' life, uh, again, as depicted by Ben Affleck. And, and this is really not spoiling anything, but I mean, the movie really does present and show you the the three possible uh, scenarios as to how Reeves might have died, and do you feel like the movie came down uh, on on one more so than the other? No, I, I thought the movie did a great job of making each of the three plausible. I agree for the most part, although my I I initially was fully committed to that opinion, but after rewatching it, well, again, I don't really I don't want to give too much away, but in terms of the scenario that they end on in the movie, I, I feel like. The character, I feel like Adrian Brody's character comes to somewhat of a conclusion. Whether the movie is making that same conclusion, I think, is something else. But in any event, I want people can watch it if they haven't. I mean, it's you know, 15 years old at this point. But uh, you know, I, I feel like it kind of flew somewhat under the radar. I mean, it was generally well received, but wasn't like a huge smash or anything like that. So I'm sure there are plenty of people who haven't watched it, and, and I would encourage them to. But you hit on something, and this was actually a question that I wanted to ask you because I agree. I think a real uh, a standout moment in the movie is when Adrian Brody's character is really struggling over 
the fact that the guy who plays his favorite character on television seemingly killed himself. And, you know, this was also at a time, you know, suicide and mental health. I mean, I don't think there was a lot of, uh, you know, understanding about, you know, those mental health issues as, as there is now. And so I'm sure that was a very tough thing for kids in particular to process. I mean, do you, so I know by the time you were watching Adventures of Superman, you know, it, it, it was in reruns and Reeves had already died and all of that. Do you remember though, like when you first found out what happened to the guy who played Superman? Yes. Yes. Uh, once again, and to the benefit of your listeners, um, I vividly remember watching this show predominantly during summer summers. And maybe it, maybe it just conflicted when I was getting home from school. Um, but I remember watching it in summers and I remember once again, like I told the other story when one of my friends gave me a synopsis of the, you know, the origin of Superman, Superman on earth. But I remember one of the, the, I guess I was at a little league game or we were playing a pickup game. And one of the, the young boys that I went to school with said, Oh yeah, he committed suicide. He jumped off a skyscraper. He thought he could fly. So I do remember people telling me that he committed suicide, but I must've been about eight or nine years old. And I can also remembering wondering like, well, why don't they do more episodes of Superman? And then this kid told me this, um, I guess in some ways, I do view it as a tragedy, but maybe it's better that he died when he did because uh, there were so many things at the end where you know, when I watched Hollywoodland, you felt bad like they were trying to, he was going to do wrestling matches and stuff like that, and they seemed such a step down. Um, but it's also sad that he couldn't, I know he tried to do his own production thing of something called Port of Entry, couldn't get funding for that, or you don't know if um, Tony Mannix's husband put the kibosh on that, you know. Um, it would have been interesting if he could have done another character, maybe after season two. It would have been interesting to see where he would have gone because he loved acting, right? And I always wondered, why didn't he guest star in another show, you know, a detective show where he could play a bad guy? Maybe, I wonder what his contract was like. Maybe it prohibited um, other portrayals. But why didn't he try to do like Summerstock or uh, theater or something like that? Um, I would have loved to have seen the contract between the producers of the show and George Reeves. Because I know they had a 30-day clause where he could be called back on 30 days notice. And clearly that would have precluded doing feature films or something like that. But it, it's tragic to me. It's really tragic because he's so indelible in my mind. And listen, I've... Um, you know, I've, I've loved him as an actor. It's just, just sad, just sad to see how it declined in the way it ended. Yeah, no, I mean, for sure. And, and again, I, you know, whether for you, you know, finding out, even though it was a few years later and, and especially for the kids, you know, who like lived through it as it was happening and as they were watching the show, I mean, I'm sure that must've been a very difficult thing to reconcile. And, you know, this is, you know, a question that comes up all the time, right? Uh, as far as whether and to what extent you can or you should separate the art from the artist and all of that. And, you know, again, I, like I keep saying, I just think that must have been a tough thing to reconcile. I'm glad that he, the legacy of his performance and the legacy of the show has endured and overcome the circumstances of his passing, right? Because you're still watching the show in reruns 
right? Like as we talked about, like, you know, you, you have season one on DVD, but that's it. And you famously it, it, don't have on, any streaming services or anything like that, but you still catch it on, on yes. your rabbit ears. Yes. Yes. Uh, every weekend, um, on heroes and icons, which I get through the rabbit ears, they show like six episodes. Now, they do it 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. So I've really got to be interested to get up then. But then they show on Sundays another two episodes around midday. And the fact that it's still broadcast, you know, it's a credit. You know, even even with the limitations and almost the punitive impact of cheap budgets and cheap production, pump it out. It's, it's a credit to him. And, and like we've said, those first two seasons, there's some gems in there that hold up well. Yeah. And so, you know, so I'm glad that, again, the legacy of the show has endured. And uh, are you are you going to use this as a trigger point to talk about the uh, the aborted uh, possibilities of what they were going to do? Yeah, I mean, this has been the money machine going. Yeah, this has been reported. I mean, there was an idea to spin off the to spin off Jimmy Olsen and it would be Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen and Superman would appear via stock footage and body doubles and things like that. And apparently Jack Larson, who played Jimmy, rejected that, uh, you know, upon being presented with the idea. I'm certainly glad I think that would have I think it would have tarnished the, the legacy of the show. And I do you think it would have been disrespectful to the the memory of Reeves to to do that? And also, just as a complete side note, you know, we talked about how much the show changed. You look at the Jim Olsen of season one versus the Jimmy of the color seasons. And I mean, as much as, you know, he was always the source of some comic relief and more so in season two. I mean, by the color seasons, he's a buffoon. Uh, so it's yeah. like, I don't know how much yeah. I would have wanted to see that anyway. <laughs> and And Anthony, to your point, if you take the Jimmy from season one, the Mad Bomber, and if that's kind of the high point of his, <laughs> I know it's all downhill from that was his best moment. <laughs> yeah, when you when you when that's your high point, that's your ideal, and then you say he's a buffoon, and the others that really is going to uh, say something to your audience about wow. And like I've said, he must be a writer's dream. Yeah, no, for sure. There was, do you want to, do you want to, I, I want, I do want to talk for a minute about the Superboy pilot, but do you want to just quickly explain uh, Super Pups? Yeah, I mean, if I can say this, right, uh, I only saw these things through Google and Wikipedia, but uh, Anthony, to your point, I heard there were three theories to try to keep the show going. One is exactly what you said, you know, we'll get Jack Larson, throw him out there and we'll use stock footage and we'll use some uh, body doubles and, but we'll center it on Jimmy and Superman will save him and, you know, we'll splice in stuff. And I think it's a credit to Jack Larson's ethics. Like you said, it would have tarnished. It would have just been so, I think, uh, disgusting and money grubbing. So I'm glad they shut that or he shut that down. But the other two things I'll let you, uh, I'll, I'll kick the, I did hear that they, someone, Oh, Jesus must have been on acid and and had the idea that we'll keep the show going. We'll keep all the actors in costume, but we'll make them puppies. Uh, like uh, Bark Bent was going to be, you know, the dog that played Clark Kent and also played Superman. So they'd have a Superman costume in this giant, almost like something you'd see at Disneyland. Um, they'd all be puppies. 
Um, and it must have been like, geez, we're going to go even lower in the age scale. Instead of five-year-olds and six-year-olds, we're going to have four-year-olds and five-year-olds and, and try to keep it. It must have been, look, I hate to say it. Hey, we built the sets. God knows they got mileage out of Perry's office. I never understood where his windows were, but <laughs> they got mileage out of that. Uh, and maybe they felt, look, well, and th- these are my words. It's a money machine. Let's keep the money machine going. I'm glad they um, terminated that. Now, to your point, I'm going to let you speak about it, but there was, I think, in 1961, the potential of launching Superboy, which was very akin to what they did, I think, in the late 80s or 90s um, with another Superboy uh, series. Um, I think they filmed a pilot. And I think they had 15 scripts ready to go, but it wasn't dicked up. Yeah, exactly. And so I watched The Adventures of Superboy pilot on YouTube, which is the only place that I could find it. And I mean, it was extremely low quality, uh, but it was watchable enough. Uh, You know, video quality, I mean. Uh, As far as the show itself, it was interesting. It wasn't bad, but it felt like it could have just as easily been an episode of Adventures of Superman, which I guess is what they were going for, you know? I mean, other than the fact that he was younger and he was talking to Lana instead of Lois, it, v- it could say, very much could have been the same car- same show. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I watched maybe two or three minutes of that Superboy pilot where he's in some room, and but he didn't strike me as a teenager. I mean, I think they could have just as easily made him the new Superman and maybe recast the uh, the actress uh, and the the other characters because he didn't strike me as you know someone who's um, you know nineteen years old or something like that. He came across as older. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, he I, I think he captured the George Reeves essence relatively well, but I agree. Like he didn't necessarily play as like a teenager, uh, more like a young adult uh, Clark, even more so probably because George Reeves was so much older when he started, you know? So I feel Uh, like, yeah. So your idea of like just kind of rebooting adventures of Superman might've made more sense. Um, But it very much, it had the same style and rhythm. The costume was very similar. They use the same wind effect when he's flying. Uh, the music was similar, but it was its own theme. Can I just say, and I know we mentioned this last time about, you know, the, the opening to Adventures of Superman, that, you know, minute long, uh, intro that plays, you know, faster than a speeding bullet, all of that. Uh, and who disguised, disguised. Exactly. I mean, I, you know, we, we can recite it, right? I think any fan can recite it. It did such a great job, right? Of pulling you in and setting the stage for what you were about to see and was so iconic and, Similarly, as limited as they were with the effects and the flying in particular, they got, you know, the the wind effect and the music <laughs> did a lot. It really did a lot to conjure the magic of like this guy is flying. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. And I just time, yeah. And I I just wanted to mention too, because you know, going back to, you know, you watching it as a kid. I mentioned to my dad recently that I've been watching the episodes and that I was gonna podcast about it. And immediately he was like oh i watch those all the time he's like i remember like racing home from school to watch them um and i know my mom watched them too and and my grandparents it's funny because it's like especially for my grandparents i think that's like if you were to ask them like oh like who do you think of as superman it's like 
that's their primary exposure to the character. So really across generations, I mean, I think it really, it's interesting. yeah, I mean, it, it really was the introduction for so many people and just with, within my own family. And it's funny, I can't help but wonder, like both of my parents watching it as a kid, you know, they were ultimately the ones who bought me my first comic and read it to me and all of that. And it's like, I don't know, maybe it, maybe it helped that they had this knowledge of who Superman was, you know? No. I, I, you know, I'm only speculating, but there might be something to that. No, their uh, receptivity or, hey, I enjoyed it. And and um, listen, uh, you, you know you've heard me speak about this for 25 years. My nephews, I've now instilled in them a love of uh, DC and Marvel by virtue of things I would buy them over the years incrementally, like uh, the Justice League Unlimited or those some of those TV shows. Uh, it's, it's let me bond with them. And um, I know that they have really come to enjoy um, their appreciation of just, you know, reading and exposure and different different uh, mythologies and thoughts and stuff like that. Yeah, no, that's that's great. You know, actually, that was one of the things I was going to ask you because, you know, you, well, you and I both, but, you know, you spent a lot of time hanging out at a comic shop. You go to comic conventions. You've met a lot of fellow comics fans in your, in your time. Uh, do you find that a lot of people share your affinity for adventures of Superman or, or is it not the case? Does it not come up? Like, I'm curious. It really, it has not come up at all. Not at all. Um, I can't think of any instance where I've been at a convention over the past 20 or 25 years where there's even been a question about it. Uh, and quite frankly, I, the reason I bought season one you know, maybe 15 or 16 years ago was you guys in the store, I think were watching it. And I remember discussing it with Steve and Roby and that triggered, you know, maybe I would to get that just to watch that again. But even when I bought the season one, I remember, I remember going, geez, I hope this is better than, you know, the, the color versions. Uh, and I was very, very pleased that it was. Um, but no, I, I've never encountered you know, someone my age where uh, we've taken a pause and go, hey, let's talk about uh, the adventures of Superman. Uh, you and the guys at the store are the only um, the environment under which I've discussed it. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, aside from the personal enjoyment of having these chats with you and the the personal fulfillment for me of kind of closing this gap in my Superman fandom, you know, one of the other reasons why I'm happy to do these podcast episodes is that, you know, if there are other fans out there who, you know, don't have someone to talk to about Adventures of Superman, they can kind of experience a bit of that through our discussion. And, uh, you know, maybe this will turn some people on to the show if they've never watched it. Or, or maybe like me, they watched a couple and they were like, ah, you know, that didn't really grab me. You know, maybe this will inspire some people. Because I really think that, uh, you know, it, it really deserves... Uh, you know, its place in this in the Superman canon. And, you know, there certainly are plenty of fans out there. I mean, I mentioned that Facebook group that I'm in and it has thousands of members and there are people who are posting images from the episodes all the time. So, you know, the fans are certainly out there, but I mean, you're right, whether it's at conventions or, you know, again, just, you know, uh, talk at the comic shop or whatever it might be, you know, it's not in the nerd zeitgeist, like, you know, now the way that, you know, whether it's even something like Smallville, right, which has been off the air for 10 years, but that cast is going to conventions and they're active on social media and they're making guest appearances on the Arrowverse show. Like it's still, 
uh, you know, kind of kind of in the mix. Whereas this is, you know, decades gone at this point. You know, most of the cast has passed and everything. And to your point, uh, two things I'll say. Um, it's interesting that really um, Noel Neal and and uh, Jack Larson never did anything. After, they, it's not like they went on to another TV series, either of them, in a different character or a different role whatsoever. So once it was over, really their careers. Now, I do know um, each of them has appeared at conventions. Um, but then the other thing I find interesting is this thing went dormant for 20 years, right? 1958 was the last TV show, and it was 1977 or 78 before Donner came out. And, you know, I, I I really, really do salute Christopher Reeve for, you know, I, I don't want you to think I'm denigrating anyone else just to put George Reeves up on a pedestal because Reeve, Christopher doing it, did such a superb job. I just didn't care for that portrayal of Clark. No, I understand. And, uh, and you know, I think this will be a theme on this podcast. You know, each each actor... Uh, when we're talking about the adaptations and, you know, each writer and artist in the comics, they all bring something a little different. And again, I think Superman, as I keep saying, is a rich enough character that there's there's enough to mine there. Uh, so, you know, so just closing the loop on the Superboy discussion. Yeah, that show did not move forward. I'm not heartbroken. Uh, again, I, I'm going to talk about this in a future episode. I, I kind of have a philosophical objection to Superboy generally, uh, <laughs> with some exceptions. Uh, but the notion of Clark adopting uh, a costumed identity in Smallville, uh, it, it just, I feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect. It doesn't really track for me. Uh, so between that and the fact that the Superboy pilot was really just kind of like a carbon copy of, of Adventures of Superman, I'm not heartbroken that it didn't move forward, but it is, it's certainly an interesting artifact. And for anyone who's curious, if you type in Adventures of Superboy 1961 pilot on YouTube, you'll, you'll likely find it. Uh, so kind of, you know, uh, bringing us to the finish line here, the final three episodes, the Brainy Burrow, uh, the Perils of Superman, and All That Glitters, the last three episodes of season six of the entire series were all directed by George Reeves. Uh, you encouraged me to watch those. I'll be honest, the mind-reading donkey one and uh, Jimmy Olsen's dream where he and Lois have powers, those were, those were kind of tough. The middle episode, though... Uh, was oh. a was a lot of fun. It was it, was your assessment of the three kind of similar? <laughs> I could not have said it better. And and we are absolutely simpatico. Of the three, that middle one, uh, I just think is fantastic. I think I really think uh, for the benefit of your listeners, that was really a throwback to the cliffhanger um, serials of really the nineteen teens and twenties and thirties, the perils of Pauline. And they hit all the tropes. You know, they had Perry in a, in a lumber mill uh, facing a buzzsaw. They had Clark over a vat of acid. They had Jimmy hanging from a cliff and Lois tied to railroad tracks. But I really think George Reeves had fun directing that. I think uh, there seemed to be some nice humor as they paid that homage to the old um, serial uh, cliffhanger movies. Yeah, for sure. That one was a lot of fun. Again, the the mind-reading donkey one, that was that was tough for sure. Uh, and then the, the finale where Jimmy has this uh, this hallucination that he and Lois have the powers of Superman. Again, it was it was kind of interesting like to see Lois and Jimmy flying. You know, it was something a little bit different. Um, but, you know, again, not necessarily the strongest outing. But the, the, the middle episode, for all the reasons you described, uh, you know, stood out. 
I'll be honest, and this is my own fault. I don't know. I don't know what I expected, but going into those episodes, knowing that George Reeves directed them, I, I don't know. I guess I was. And there's really no basis for this, but I, in in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, like maybe there'll be somewhat of a return to those earlier episodes that I liked. And again, obviously that was not the case. And it was, you know, th- there was no real reason for me to, to anticipate that. Uh, well, but Anthony, I, once again, we're simpatico. I wish he had lived and I wish he would have found more enjoyment, maybe moving from, uh, being in front of the camera to working behind the camera. He might have enjoyed that from a creative standpoint. And I did hear rumors that when they tried to bring them back for that that uh, seventh season, that there was talk that they were going to put more money into the production and, you know, get better scripts, and, um, better stories and better, um, um, you know, scenery and stuff like that. So I, I wish he could have had more of an opportunity to work as a director, because I think he would have derived just creative enjoyment from that. I No, for sure. And I know you had mentioned this off mic before we started, and I had come across this in my research too, that there was a script for uh, a movie, right? That would have, that would have, you know, used the cast and been based on the show, but it was too deemed too expensive and they, they couldn't get funding for it. Correct. That's what I heard. Yeah. Superman, I think it was in 1957 and it was plans for a feature film. It was supposed to be Superman and the Secret Planet. Um, but I know a couple of other 1950s children's shows, like The Lone Ranger. Uh, they did a couple of feature films in the late 50s. And apparently they were great box, box office successes. So it's a shame they couldn't have done that. You know, um, who knows? Yeah. The no. road that might have been. No, for sure. Um, you know, as as we, as we wrap up here, you know, I, I got to say it's been like I said, very personally fulfilling for me to, to close this gap. I mean, I'm, I'm a lifelong Superman fan from ages five to currently 33 yet, you know, there was this huge piece of the Superman puzzle that, uh, I hadn't explored and, and now I have, and, and I've been able to do that in large part because of you and your enthusiasm and your, your knowledge and your perspective, your history with the show. It, it's really, uh, again, I know you've thanked me for, you know, motivating you to, to revisit it, but I really thank you so much for, you know, everything that you've brought to our discussions. Well, uh, it, it, that cuts both ways, you know, really, uh, I never, again, I said this many times, your interest and your reaching out to me really lit the fire where I uh, listen. I watched a lot more episodes. I did a lot more research on Wikipedia and Google and blog spots and websites where I, I cultivated this um, kind of minutia knowledge. But it's been fascinating. And again, I guess the other thought is it great. It it it, it increased my interest in and my appreciation of the character. But the sad thing is, boy, I, I do feel it was such a tragedy. Um, that poor guy just couldn't find the happiness he was seeking. Yeah. And, you know, between the, you know, the, the shift in, in the style of the show with the color seasons uh, and, of, and, of course, the circumstances surrounding Reeves' passing, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, there are certainly, you know, a, a number of disappointing and sad aspects to this, this whole piece uh, of the show, but I will say, you know, those first two seasons, I hope and anticipate that they'll become a part of my regular Superman 
you know, rotation. Uh, I mean, whether it's the Christopher Reeve movies or the more recent Snyder movies or Smallville, I mean, there's so much stuff that I go back to from time to time. And I, uh, again, my intention certainly is, is especially for those black and white episodes to kind of become part of that rotation. And as you know, you know, I have certain annual traditions. I watch It's a Wonderful Life every Christmas Eve. I watch a selection of Honeymooners episodes every, every New Year's Day. And I don't know, maybe... I'll watch some Adventures of Superman episodes like every Thanksgiving or something like that. I mean, it's the sort of thing that uh, really has come to hold a special place for me. And, I, you know, I, I hope to to continue that moving forward. Amen. I could not have said it better. I, I, I'll, likewise, periodically, I'll, I'll dust off certain of these things uh, just to reawaken my enjoyment of the character and the stories and the time. So, yeah, I, I could see this becoming to your to steal your words. You know, kind of an, an annual tradition where I watch three or four and just, you know, reminisce. Yeah. Uh, the very last thing is, uh, as you know, right, there's a Batman 66 comic book, right? Like there's DC has published a, a comic book set within the world of the Adam West Batman TV series. And, you know, there's been speculation or, or you know, uh, on people's wish list that they might do like a 1952 Superman, right? A Superman comic. I've read about that. They're, you know, the Batman 66. And I read some um, fan recommendations for Superman 55, um, which would have been intriguing. Yeah. Why 55? Because the show started in 52. Yeah. Uh, I, the only thing I can think of, and this is literally the second, they did Batman 66, Wonder Woman 77, and maybe it was just the alliteration. I got or, it. I got you. No, okay. That makes sense. Um, all right. Well, listen, we've been going for two and a half hours. <laughs> so for any of our audience who's been with us, you know, thank you. Or maybe you skipped around, whatever the case may be. But, you know, we really appreciate you, uh, you know, coming on this ride with us. It's, it's been a lot of fun. You know, perhaps we'll do a revisited episode down the line where, you know, if we come up with more stuff to talk about, we will. But I think for the both of us, you know, we've been having so many conversations about it. And I feel like, I mean, I don't know how you feel, but I feel like we really, we brought all of that <laughs> to these podcasts. I really feel like we captured, uh, you know, all those conversations that we've been having. I really feel like we were able to 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 bring that to the show. I, I, I totally agree. Uh uh, the only, and I'm sorry to be a jerk, this is the purest in me. I really wish, and you know I've said this like 10 times, that first weekend when we both watched Superman on Earth within like the same 24 hours, oh my God, that was lightning in a bottle because that was the first time I'd ever seen it. And I can just remember being so jazzed with you. But boy, I'll tell you, the every discussion that you've recorded, I think our energy level has matched that. I really do. I do too. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you to everyone who has listened or watched. I really appreciate it. We will be back uh, with an all new episode in two weeks. And until then, remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. Digging for Kryptonite is a flat squirrel production. Art by Greg Shegel, music by Basic Printer. If you like what you heard, be sure to listen to My Comic Shop History, available on most major podcast platforms. Sign up for exclusive additional content including the Digging for Kryptonite companion podcast at patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato and watch my documentary film, My Comic Shop Country, out now on Apple TV and Amazon.